0: The Iliad, Homer's epic poem on the Trojan War. We'll talk about rage, the values of ancient Greek civilization, depictions of heroism,
1: violence, and why you can't always trust what you see. All that and more on this episode of Classics Cafe.
0: Um, All right, so TJ, uh, the Iliad is obviously a text that is well known in the culture from references. Um, So i just like to ask, what were some of the differences and similarities between the Iliad that you expected and then the Iliad that you got in the actual text?
1: Yeah, so I had actually read this once before at Washu when I was like 18 or 19 in a text and traditions class and i i think i read the whole thing like i think it was good in doing my homework then but uh, as i'll talk about with this reading of it as well i forget whole swaths of <laughs> this this poem the whole books as we go through so i kind of remembered i guess the greatest hits of it but i still as i was reading was expecting the horse the trojan horse yes. in there and where is no the trojan horse <laughs> horse where is the horse and the rider <laughs> and it's nowhere to be found which is really curious to me about where does that where does that myth come from of the trojan horse uh i did also think kind of as you indicated earlier that achilles was going to die in this and that the whole ending the way that that his conflict with Priam is resolved was not what I had remembered or expected. I think because maybe the movie took over my, my imagination of this story, but those were kind of two big ones for me. Did you have some that you ways in which the poem was different from what you had expected
0: definitely the two that you mentioned there of the the trojan horse and the death of achilles i expected those to be there um i also didn't expect the poem to start 10 years already into the war Uh um i thought we were going to get more of helen's background um and her uh sort of affair or or capture or we don't really get much of that to start off of what we'd like sort of start with her already as uh already in troy um so that mm-hmm. was surprised by that i had also i had heard that there would was a lot of killing in it obviously i did not expect this degree of <laughs> um just <laughs> almost like a yeah. catalog of, of yes. individual deaths yes um, which I think kind of like the, especially in the middle books really uh, sort of like glaze my eyes over sometimes as I'm reading them where there's just so, so many names. So that, mm-hmm. that definitely took me off um, of my expectations. Um, I had looked to, I, I saw in terms of the, the Trojan horse, I just, I, because I also thought it to be in the Iliad, I looked up um, and it's briefly mentioned in the Odyssey um but oh. but most of it comes from other myths or other uh text um so like the aeneid has a long section but that's obviously like centuries later that that's written yeah um which kind of reminds me of uh what came to mind is the uh like the the star wars um like rogue one when that came out of, it was based on like a brief mention of getting the death star plans. And then Mm -hmm. they're like, okay, we got to fill in this part of the mythology. And that seemed to be like kind of what Virgil was doing of, we get this brief mention of the Trojan horse. I'm going to flesh this out. Um, Or whether there were like other, you know, extant uh, uh, texts that we just don't that have been lost to history, but really it's not, it's not in the Iliad at, at all.
1: No, which I think with the structure of the poem, I I don't want to say it's anticlimactic because it's it's definitely not. But I was waiting for that like book twenty two or book twenty three kind of clear advantage happening within the war, which in a sense happens because Achilles finally decides to go fight. Mm-hmm. Um, but you even you know he he has that um, kind of truce ish with Priam at the end, so that they can get Hector's body and bury it or or give him funeral rites, but I still this still feels like it's a a bit of a cliffhanger at the end. Mm -hmm. Like there's there's still more yet to come. Did that did you have that experience? Well,
0: I was thinking that too of um because I like I I said I expected Achilles to to die at the end to get that, especially because it's foreshadowed throughout the poem itself um so Mm -hmm. often. And I was thinking of like it what actually is like is there a narrative arc of the poem, and what is that? Um, and it seems to be like, even though he's abs, like literally absent for a lot of the poem, it's Achilles uh, overcoming his or setting aside his um, rage at Agamemnon, uh, and in some way, the the death of Patroclus that grief allows him to then start fighting. And it seems like the the Trojans really take the death of Hector as like almost like well that's it the city is for sure going to fall now yeah um and i was that that part kind of struck me as something i did not expect of you know obviously he's their their king but the um that being like a moment where we know now that the war is like we know now that we've lost um because of his death and that's uh that kind of struck me as, as odd um i would say the i i did find it kind of satisfying um the the funeral games after patroclus dies yeah. uh, can i ask what what did you make of that section um what um
1: yeah uh, <laughs> there there are parts of it where i'm like you guys are having a lot of fun here um uh, this, this sounds great um uh <clears throat> what, what i got when i read that section was more i think of a kind of cultural a, a profile of like a cultural practice than it did add to me any a character development, if that makes sense. Even with Patroclus, because Patroclus um has this moment and kind of dominates for a book or two of the narrative. But given that he has one of the longest books in the in the poem is dedicated to the the funeral games, you would expect that you know the placement of that near the end of the story It's supposed to be, I don't know, like cathartic, resolve something, and it seems like it's overkill given the size of his character throughout it. So I read it more as a, you know, maybe a way in which Achilles is getting somewhat emotionally satisfied or emotionally uh, um, tempered there, but also just like, hey, here's what it would have looked like for... People to honor someone who was a great warrior that that died fighting for them. Mm -hmm.
0: Kind of like the anthropological sense of it of. Yeah. Yeah. I I had a So let let me run a theory by you and you can tell me if it if it makes sense or if you want to push back on it. So I was looking at kind of what happens in the funeral game and how they interact with each other. And throughout so much of the poem, there's been sort of bickering and squabbling amongst the mm. Greeks themselves that like yeah. even almost even more so than between Greeks and Trojans. It's kind of intra party uh, sort of conflict. And yeah. um, so literally parts of the the funeral games are there's a chariot race where there's a big argument about whether someone raced too dangerously and caused somebody <laughs> else to crash. <laughs> and um, we think it's going to be like you know, maybe come to blows, but they end up actually both apologizing to the other person. Um, So the, uh, the, the kind of modeling of a, this is how like a young person apologizes to an older person. This is how the older person accepts the young person's apology. Um, Mm -hmm. They also have, which I thought was like very dangerous when they started like a literal spear fight between two people. Yeah. And it looks like they're going to like kill each other and one does draw blood and then they come in and are like, "Okay, that's enough. Like this is too dangerous. Let's stop this." Mm-hmm. Um and then they had a um I think it was like a wrestling contest that ended in a draw and yeah. I, and I think part of it was um after this, you know, books and books of just infighting between the greeks and then also just bloody warfare it was like hey here's a way that like men can still um you know compete against each other and prove their medal and prove their honor and win some glory without it having to result in like all of this death and bloodshed um now granted achilles did slaughter a bunch of trojans to start the games <laughs> <laughs> uh uh-huh. but once but once that was done then the Greeks were much more getting along and being kind of generous with each other um through that um so that's that's just an idea but I thought I thought that was kind of like a way of like here at the end of this poem here's a better model for um sort of masculine glory
1: so do you think that makes the the poem do you think that softens the way in which it is in a lot of ways, about glorifying the honor of going to war and dying mm. uh, in war and dying, knowing you're going to die and going anyway? And this is I think this is a very pro-war book. Um, but do you think that in book 23 and book 24 kind of changes that? it softens that within the poem or is it just a little too little too late?
0: Well, I, I don't know. As, as I was reading it, I was thinking that same kind of question of, is this a pro war book or not? Um, and I think it's, it's a little bit complicated in terms of, um, I think a lot of the, uh, what happens and the characters reactions can be read as either pro-war sort of propaganda almost or kind of a complex layering of it um Mm -hmm. so maybe let's go through maybe the the parts that were the most strongly pro-war and then the the parts where it gave me some some pause so were there any parts that was like that stood out as like wow this is a really militaristic like uh society or this the values are are that
1: Yes. And I don't remember which book this is in. So sorry. But when Hector goes back home for a minute. Yeah. Book six. Hector returns to Troy. Mm-hmm. And. Oh, I, I kind of flipped right to it. This is how nice. Um, they're They're telling him, dude, don't go back. This is not looking good. And you have a wife and you have a new kid. And he says. All this weighs on my mind too, dear woman, but I would die of shame to face the men of Troy and the Trojan women trailing their long robes if I would shrink from battle now, a coward. So he even says later, uh, for in my heart and soul, I know this well, the day will come when sacred Troy must die, Priam must die and all his people with him. So he's like um, this war is not going to go very well and even if we keep even if we do well at some point all of this will pass right my nation my identity this the man that I am fighting for under his banner is going to die too but it sounds like he's like we're we're pot committed at this point <laughs> and it would yes. just be a, a huge bummer to to walk back now um I I, I read that as pro-war not in the you know not not in like a really simple sense but in that it's very nationalistic it is literally putting knowing that your country and knowing that your you know national cultural identity is going to be erased sooner rather than later and still fighting for that like the state rather than particular individuals Mm -hmm. um was was something that i thought was
0: yeah and, and, fascist. We, <laughs> and i mean we get a version of achilles having that same kind of idea too where it's like he knows that as soon as he kills hector his death is not far away either yeah um, and he makes that choice of like well i gotta fight anyway like this is this is something that's been you know my mother has tel- told me about but it's like mm-hmm. he doesn't even kind of entertain the option that like Oh, he he could not fight. Like that's that's another thing too that he could do. But like that's that's just like not even part of it part of his decision. Um mm-hmm. the I wonder though like that that idea of Hector being aware that he's um sort of things are not going well and that you know, he's doomed, um, even at the sort of you know, early books of the of the text, there's this idea that like no one wants to fight this war that um within the Mm -hmm. greeks they're like god like why are we here can like we go home and uh you know everyone is so mad at paris for like getting them into this um and that's part of it where i i get what you're saying about like the identity being so tied to the like fighting for the state but that's the part where i was like well how pro-war is this if this is not like seen as like an honorable, um, reason for going to war, um, where it's like, you know, for like Americans, like compared to like world war II, where it's like, we've got to defeat this, like obviously evil enemy, um, and our, our intentions or sorry, our motivations are, um, sort of a hundred percent pure. There's, there's a lot more kind of ambivalence. I would say even at the beginning of like, why are we here? Why are we doing this? Like, we've got to do it, but like, this kind of sucks.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, to what you're saying, that neither side seems to have a sense through most of the poem of moral righteousness for a particular cause, mm-hmm. but rather when they talk people back up to it, it kind of, the cause is kind of dignity, honor, or just war itself. And at the beginning, when those people are like, I don't, I don't know what we're doing, you're reminded several times that it's fated with a lot of them and they will meet their fate but also that you know who so who keeps them going it's the gods right that anytime the men are like ah maybe we can work work this out some way the gods intervene they give they send that murderous dream to agamemnon um they like possess Di- diomedes for <laughs> like yeah. that whole section where he basically gets the star on mario and just like <laughs> <you know? laughs> Uh, and there's, there's so much of God's intervening <laughs> with this that when they finally fight, you're like, I, you guys should have done this a long time ago because this is clearly what you wanted. Mm-hmm. And I don't totally understand how gods are viewed within Greek society. I know, oh, they're very human and they have flaws and whatnot, but I don't know if it necessarily, the things that they do are always supposed to be virtues to which men aspire. But because they kept egging the war on, there was a way in which, through kind of a Christian lens, <laughs> I read this as, "Oh well, if the gods won it, then the values of the culture should go with it." If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, and I and I was wondering too about the gods' involvement along the way, um, and to what extent, like the gods and and also fate is used. Like literally, this is the beliefs of the characters in the poem. Or are these sometimes used as rhetorical strategies to excuse their own behavior? So I'm thinking of, especially, I think it was Agamemnon at the end when um, he finally makes up with Achilles and he Mm -hmm. basically says like, Hey, sorry, I was possessed by the gods. Like they they made me they made me crazy, or they made you know, they and it's like, don't blame me. This is the gods that did this to me. And I was like, yeah. You know what you did, Agamemnon. <laughs> like, come <laughs> you on, know what you did. <laughs> you <laughs> don't blame this on someone else. Uh, yeah. and I'm wondering, is like, so like when you know, so many of the like just throughout the battle scene, so many of the heroes are like inspired by the gods or the mm-hmm. gods trick them in some way like is an is an audience that's um you know listening to this poem are they thinking like this is a way to explain human action like or is this like literally this is what's causing the human action um which i think is like a subtle like a subtle but important distinction where it's like this is the way we talk about it or like this is literally how it's how it's happening um because if if you're thinking about it like pro um if it's like a pro war text like the gods themselves are don't like, don't come off as great in this either. It's not as if they have like reason, like good reasons for backing one side of the other or like righteous reasons for that. They're just like squabbling as much as the mortals are.
1: Yeah. And squabbling about like, who's more favored with Zeus or who like pissed somebody else off or who was, you know, Oh, everybody thinks Athena is a better warrior than I am. And, um, that they do come off as incredibly petty, at least from my perspective.
0: Yeah. yeah. You did mention, though, the other the other part I wanted to touch on that you talked about was um, warfare as like a way to prove uh, masculine virtue or masculine glory. Um, yeah. That I think and that kind of struck me as like, even though this obviously this poem is so old, something that still kind of resonates today. Of this idea of like how do you prove your worth as a man and like mm-hmm. do you can you only do that through violent means or through like feats of strength and if those um like avenues aren't available like in what way is that energy kind of channeled in perhaps like other destructive destructive ways um so i was thinking of um kind of like there's a lot of Uh, you know kind of on the the right in terms of uh youtube or other influencers talking about going back to the classics as a way of uh like giving purpose to modern men so this um you know we've talked really is this a thing oh this is definitely a thing yes so we wow so there's a there's a big uh, reassert a big um Uh, what do you call it? Like a a big fascination, a renewed fascination with stoicism, um, right now of, uh, you know, let's look back to ancient models of masculinity and like masculine philosophy Mm -hmm. as a way to sort of make sense of today's, of your purpose in today's world where, you know, we don't have, um, at least in most countries don't have like a war to fight in like a literal war to fight in um yeah and there is the uh the the, the viral have you heard about the viral tiktok that went around of how often do you think about ancient rome
1: no oh if not,
0: oh my gosh so
1: this is sorry i'm like not on the internet
0: so. <laughs> this, this was a uh this was like a super viral uh tiktok trend where it was okay. a bunch of it was a bunch of girlfriends asking their boyfriends in their lives um, how often yeah. do you think of ancient Rome, and it okay. was it was surprisingly a lot. Like so, the it's a it's a bunch of guys being like I don't know, like uh, once a week probably, or or maybe every couple of days, and like the girlfriends being shocked by this, uh, uh-huh. but then like w- pressed for like further explanation. The guys are like, well, you know, it's it's a it's an important period of history. Like, uh, you know, and like gladiators are cool. And like <laughs> it was a time of like, you know, trying to maintain a civilization through through military might. Um, and I think that's like even today, like uh, where we often um, go back to our classical models as ways to try to think about like what what is a way for um, masculinity to, to be virtuous today? um
1: do you think people go back to those classical models because it's we're we're removed enough from it to actually have a lens of scrutiny on it or do you think there's a sense of like well it's respectable because it's old and it lasted so long or is it this like back when men were men
0: i think it's kind of the back when men were men idea the like the, uh-huh. the very simple idea of like um you know, like just physical strength and courage as as like virtues that were obviously like necessary in, in ancient warfare and that today outside of like very few arenas have just become kind of um obsolete virtues that like, you know, m- for most people, it really doesn't matter how physically strong you are. That doesn't really correlate to like how successful you are in today's world. Um, same with like courage, like most people don't have to show like literal courage of, um, you know, <laughs> fighting, fighting a bunch of spearmen or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's this fantasy of like back then, like my like, you know, and this is like all kind of bullshit, like masculine coded <laughs> virtues. But like back mm-hmm. then, like masculine virtues were appreciated. And like, if only our society was structured in that way then like there would still be sort of purpose to my to my life today and you could do it you could definitely do it without the the violence part of it like i think that's kind of why like stoicism has become so popular in recent years it's like it's a way to have some of that without having the the violent aspect of it too
1: a couple things um first is that that argument of that that um representing for us that perhaps we're straw manning a bit is uh does strike me as kind of begging the question in the sense that um we should be men like this because that's how it was back in the day. well, what why was back in the day better because it was these virtues that I want that I already want to have, if that makes sense. so like uh we should be like the ancient Greeks because the ancient Greeks Were courageous and strong, okay. Well, why why should you look so far back? Well, you should look so far back because they were courageous and strong. Like it's it it seems like it's um, kind of a self fulfilling answer if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, I I get what you're saying. Um, and and I would even say like the the text itself, like the Iliad that we get, doesn't necessarily agree with this idea totally. Um, Mm -hmm. in terms of like the uh, the actual sort of representation of violence in the battle scenes. Um, so much of it, which kind of, again, maybe gets back to the question of what surprised, surprised me about the text. So much of it is not a glorified means of killing.
1: No, um,
0: I was, did you count how many times someone killed another person with a literal rock, just like picking a, <laughs> picking a or, rock up off the ground
1: <laughs> or in their sleep? Yeah. Which you sent me that wonderful graphic, um, and uh, it, it has that, which I love, that Diomedes kills like 12 people, 13 people while they're sleeping. Mm-hmm. and I'm sitting here going, I mean, if that were if it were me, I'd be like, this is perfect. this person is not going to fight back at all, but that doesn't seem very uh, manly. um yeah, victim with, and he's the one that does it. Victim was asleep at the time. I'm like, dude. Um, also, though, uh, so I want to go back real, real quick. Uh, you brought up the stoicism comparison. It strikes me though that, like, that's a very, very different type of quote-unquote masculine virtue because it's so like passive, actually, mm-hmm. uh, and nonviolent.
0: Yeah, and you can. I mean, I you could obviously the characters in the Iliad are not stoic at all like no, like no, no. Like, uh-huh, like achilles uh-huh. is the opposite of stoic he really yeah. he really feels his emotions and lets them mm-hmm. dictate his actions um yeah i think i think kind of what i the, the what i was saying for for that part is like not necessarily um well I, I think like there's just like the ancient past is often kind of lumped together or parts of it are are taken um you know anachronistically to fit kind of whatever you want to believe or whatever your worldview Mm -hmm. is in the modern day and then you can find a um an ancient antecedent to like lend it some legitimacy
1: Um, oh gotcha okay uh back to the point you're making about the the violence not being particularly um glorified i have a theory that you know movies that are more graphically violent are actually more anti-violent than something like a bond film or most superhero films where uh the killing is pretty much painless and bloodless and so it feels more like you're kind of just dispatching npcs as the kids say um (laughs) whereas when you get some really really nasty stuff then i think that it's uh, not even if it's necessarily more realistic but it has a a clearer kind of visceral consequence Mm -hmm. And to that point, um, can I read a couple descriptions of some murders in here, yeah, Dave? please. All right. Uh, viewer discretion is advised. So th- these all come from book 16. This dude got a sword in the neck. Nothing held but a piece of skin, and from that, Lycon's head dangled down. That's, that's some nasty stuff. Here's another one. A rock to the head. The sharp stone caught Hector's charioteer on the forehead. It shattered both his eyebrows, crushing the bone, and his eyes fell out and rolled in the dust at at his feet. Yeah, and then uh, also book 16. This is a a Trojan, Iremus, who gets a spear to the mouth. The metal point of the spear penetrated under his brain and smashed the white jawbones. His teeth were knocked out. Both his eyes filled with blood, and gasping for breath, he blew blood through his mouth and nostrils. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, whoa, right? And so I don't know. I I'm not really like a bloodthirsty pro-war person, but I would find it very strange for anyone to read that and be like, "Fuck yeah!" You know? Yeah. Um, that's that's a that's a rough way to go, man.
0: Well, and you compared it to kind of modern movies where like like a james bond i think is a perfect um, contrast to that where the killing the violence is made to look cool and Mm -hmm. part of that like cool factor is actually hiding the um gross sort of anatomical realities uh behind it as you were reading those what struck me is like so much of the death scenes is almost like a medical textbook of like, here are the body parts, then here are how they're breaking, which makes mm-hmm. these, these men, um, like, it, I think it, it, in some ways, like degrades the human person in a way of like, at the end of the day, we're just like a bunch of meat sacks that can be ripped apart in all of these gross ways. Um, yeah which I think, I definitely think it sort of like adds evidence to the, to the anti-war, um, reading of it um i can't i also can't just imagine like you know we're here reading this um from a from a book but like people like people think that this was performed at like festivals um like (laughs) recited aloud could you imagine sitting for like three hours just listening to description after description of people just getting just killed in these brutal ways
1: and then just being like, all right,
0: let's go get some lunch now. Like, <laughs> what, what? What is that afternoon
1: like? Yeah. Well, you, you said three hours. <laughs> I, I took a look at the audio book for this because I was just curious. I was like, wow, this, this was recited at festivals, you know. And I want to know what that structure was like because the audio book is about 17 hours. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing a three-day festival, you're talking about like five or six-hour stretches of this sort of entertainment if you're doing a three-day festival again i have no idea what the festivals are actually like but to your point there is and this is characteristic of epics as i only recently learned researching something else um this not not just list making which we can talk about list making in this in a minute but also this way in which time is not condensed by just kind of mentioning something is repetitious. So there's a certain type of narrative structure where you would say, you know, you would give Day in the Life of Dave as a way of establishing character. And then after that, we're like, okay, we don't need to see how Dave makes his oatmeal anymore. One description was good enough, and we understand that that's Dave has oatmeal every day, and he does it that way. Epics typically don't do that. Epics typically are like, and then the 17th time that Dave made Oatmeal was, you know, and that, that to me is so evident as a structure within how the killing is described in this poem that it gets, except for those top three that I just mentioned, it has a bit of a numbing effect.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah. With,
1: yeah. And there are whole characters whose introductions are merely their deaths. You know, it'll be like, and then so-and-so, the charioteer's brother, got, you know, skull-fucked by a spear or whatever. <laughs> um, and um, for a while, I was like, oh, God, who was that? And I was kind of flipping back, trying to see. No, it's just, we're, we're going to name drop this person, and then they're dead three lines later.
0: Yeah, it was like, um, to even a greater extent, if you like walked into Avengers Infinity War, but you had never seen a Marvel movie... And then you were just seeing like a very bloody version of that of like, I guess all of these characters have importance, but like there's so many of them that there's no way we could know all of them. Um, Mm -hmm. I was wondering, I was actually wondering, though, like would a would a contemporary reader of that, like are those names that they know, do they know some of that like backstory and like these are characters that's like we only need a little brief mention because that reminds me of a whole story
1: um that's that's a great question i was thinking the same thing like to use your you know to use your marvel thing um if if you know the mcu when someone drops in like daredevil pops up in spider-man no way home far from home one of them uh and everyone in the theater was like oh because they just knew looking at the sky and it suggested this whole story but if you're like me people are going and i'm like what like am i supposed to know who that is yeah (laughs) Um, and just just to give a sense of this
0: to to people who haven't listened or sorry haven't um read the poem so like uh there's this infographic um that i'll pull up here that was uh to give them credit it's greek myth comics and it's uh goes through deaths of the iliad and these are Mm. these are named people so these are not just like And then, you know, this person killed like 100 people. These are these are most of these people have names and we get uh, total deaths, 201 Trojans, 54 Greeks. So imagine like reading like paragraph after paragraph after paragraph of and then this person, few lines about their backstory, few lines about their brutal death on to the next, um, for over 250 characters, which to like, for a modern (laughs) reader, is like, that's, that's wild. That's just like, not how we, um, portray warfare anymore. Like narratively, um,
1: except, Oh, sorry. Oh, no, go go ahead. Go ahead. Except I thought of one contemporary, um, the kind of analogous text to this. Have you read 2666?
0: Ooh, I couldn't get through it because I I found it too boring.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, by Roberto Bolano. Well, part I think part two, book two, is like ninety pages of basically a paragraph, 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 each one describing a pretty graphically brutal rape and murder of a young mm-hmm. woman. Because that's what you know the, the crime at the central of the novel is is this serial killing of young women. I think it's near Juarez, maybe. Or is it near Santiago? I don't know. It was a long time ago. Um, And and again, instead of just being like, oh, our killer has killed and raped 120 women, he goes through and gives you like the newspaper blotter type Mm -hmm. writing, journalistic writing of all of this for what I think is 90 pages. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And it is uh, at first you're like, oh, my God. And it has a little bit of that kind of true crime fascination. But then very quickly, it gets this exhausting, accumulating effect that is just kind of numbing. And it reminded me a lot of the killings here, but also um, the gathering of the armies in book two.
0: Yeah. Okay. Oh, can, I, can I mention one other thing that you, you actually reminded <laughs> yeah. me of? Um, yeah. The Cormac McCarthy. Um, I'm blanking on the title of the book. What's the book? Blood Meridian. Blood Meridian.
1: Or- the evening redness in the West.
0: Yes. And that's, that's another, and that's, um, definitely, obviously, a uh, more modern, uh, representation of that repetition. Um, and that was another book that I, 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 got through that one, but that was one where I was like, I found myself bored by the constant repetition of violence because it yeah. was such a different, um, sort of just narrative structure that you're, that you're used to of, 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 uh, sort of depiction of, of war or, or violence in that way.
1: Which I think that's, you know, an interesting way to think about I don't know if Homer was intending this or whoever or whatever Homer was, but Bolaño and McCarthy are are very clearly trying to harken back to epic myths and the Bible in several places. But because, you know, the Bible has the same sort of thing with and so-and-so begets, so-and-so begets. And you're like, I get it. There were generations. <laughs> yeah. and they're like, no, no, no. But we haven't gotten to Jephthah's fourth son. And you're like, shit. Um, uh, but the, they're also both of those writers were very interested in evil and very interested in, um, you know, ha- how harrowing violence is. And what they're what they are doing in those texts, McCarthy and Bolano, is very anti-violent. It's very anti, not glorifying any of this. And it makes me wonder if they're kind of reinscribing Homer, or if they would say that Homer was doing the same thing.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, definitely. I, I uh, to speak to McCarthy, like the even the language in that is um, kind of like epic language, or harkening back to like Old Testament um, in the in the style of the sentences. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the other one I wanted to mention too I, uh in terms of sort of list listing and we'll get to I guess we're going to get to the list um in the poem the the uh sort of more modern example that I thought of uh in terms of a memorial for this is the Vietnam um veterans memorial. Uh, uh, have you ever have you ever visited that? I have not. Okay. So it's um for those people who don't know it it's the it's like this huge wall of black granite and that's highly polished and it is inscribed with the names of every serviceman US serviceman who was killed in Vietnam so there are i think there's like almost 60,000 individual names on the wall and it's pretty much just like it's very minimalistic in terms of other other like ornamentation around it it's pretty much just this wall and the names on it, um, and there was actually some some controversy. I looked up uh, a little bit of the background. There was some controversy about the memorial, where um, a competing uh, uh, design for it was instead three soldiers that were representations of uh, you know U.S. soldiers. One was. Um, Caucasian, one was African American, and then one was designed to look like kind of a, a combination of races or or ambiguous ethnicity to represent the the people who had fought. And they reached a compromise where they put the statue of the soldier like next to the wall. Um, but mm. I thought it was a a kind of a, repre- a, a a way to think about like how do we represent all of these deaths? Is it literally the names of the people like listed out? Um, or is it this uh, you know, here are three People who didn't really exist, but like these are representations of thousands of others like them, um, yeah. and and I think like obviously like in our culture we're more accustomed to the three soldiers representing the the larger group, um, but it's just kind of striking when you get actually the the list uh, of of individuals instead.
1: And you know, I think that's something that our culture, at least the media culture, is trying to be more intentional about in regards to like mass shootings in the United States is that, um, you know, by, by way of some more context, I'm reading and writing a lot about Karlovia Knausgaard right now. And in book six of my struggle with his 450 page Hitler essay in there, uh, it's called the name and the number. And one of the things he talks about in there is the way in which we need to remember the Holocaust, not as, like a global event but as a local event and what he means by that is he goes it it wasn't the extermination of six million jews it was the extermination of one and one and one and one and one six million times Mm -hmm. and that it seems you know that seems possibly just like a semantic twist but it's a way of thinking of it instead of like a mass extermination thinking of it instead as six million individual killings and he mentions in there that like, everybody knows who Timothy McVeigh is, but no one can name a single person that Timothy McVeigh killed.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, you might even know the number, but you don't know, you know, and maybe you could recognize his face, but you you can't recognize any of the people who were in that. So a way perhaps of, and I've seen the media trying to do this within the last, um, you know, five-ish years with mass shootings in the U.S. of either not showing or naming the killer, but always excuse me showing and naming the victims you know even the 911 memorials right afterward like this is this is a weird thing to bring up but at the super bowl when U2 and Bono did the the super bowl uh hmm. halftime performance in the back was all the names of all of the americans who died on 911 scrolling there you know yeah. and it can have this kind of numbing cumulative effect but the argument that all of this i think is making is um that there's, there's a power in getting to the granularity of the individual because it doesn't allow for violence to actually erase that person totally. Mm-hmm. Obviously they're dead, but they're not completely, their name is not erased, if that makes sense. Yeah,
0: I th- I think though to go to the the numbing effect of it is I just don't think like human beings are capable of processing grief, no. like on an individual level to that scale um mm-hmm. where we get um you know some of some of the most i would say moving parts of the iliad are you know individual like very small moments of or very big moments of grief but like through the eyes of one character so like mm-hmm. um after hector's death like his father his wife like we get these long lamentations and mm-hmm. you know even though it's like just they're grieving over just one person. That I think, for like at least for modern people, is like easier to um, like sympathize with in that way. Where like you know, when you even even when you like think about the the number of people killed at nine eleven or on the mm-hmm. uh, in Vietnam, it's just like you can't like you you literally can't on a like a physiological level comprehend that yeah. much grief on an individual basis.
1: Um, yeah, and it's interesting then that narrative kind of narrative is forced to condense the the sheer scope of human tragedy into, say three soldiers, three representative soldiers, for example, in order to have some sort of empathy from humans, but at the same time, it's kind of requiring the anonymity of the one and one and one and one that make mm-hmm. up the totality of it. but i I like your point, as unfortunate as it is that you you simply could not get the same emotional reaction out of 60,000 single lamentations, you know?
0: Yeah, um, yeah. You had mentioned the lists in general. Were there other lists that you wanted to bring
1: up? Oh, you bet, Dave. Uh, <laughs> and you know how I love lists. Uh, <laughs> but book two, The Gathering of Armies, and I mentioned earlier that I read the Iliad uh, in undergrad, and the, the professor was like, okay... Book two, this is going to get really rough. You've got the catalog of the ships. Go ahead and just kind of skip this or skim it when you get there. He's like, none of these people are going to be brought up later. You're not supposed to know who any of these people are. And it is, again, very much the like genealogy in the Pentateuch, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So around line 570 of book two, we get a... uh, Several times throughout... The poem we get a re-invocation of the muse, right? The Odyssey begins singing me oh muse, but then this one begins rage, and then, and then we get the invocation of the muse. Well, every now and then the poet kind of takes a breath, and is like, "Hey, come back, muse." <laughs> so we get sing to me now, you muses who hold the halls of Olympus. Da 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 da. It says, "Sing, sing in memory all." who gathered under Troy and boy, do they get all of them. (laughs) Now, now I can only tell the Lords of ships, the ships and all their numbers. So it is about 400 lines of poem. Yeah. About 400 lines of poem. That is small stanzas, typically beginning with then next or, and, (laughs) and, And you'll get and the men who blank, and then we get all of these d- naming of the men, what they're, what's on their breastplates, <laughs> etc. And what I like about this kind of visually, because this is a this is a slugbook, I got to tell you, is, you know, you hear that line about Helen that's not in the Iliad. Is this the face that launched a thousand ships? And who knows if it was actually a thousand, but you get this image of a thousand, and kind of the isolated stanzas here that then go and then and next i really could visualize like a line of ships or a camera shifting kind of ship to ship Mm -hmm. as you're getting this and there's a really nice shot the movie's bad but the movie troy there's a really nice shot where it starts on a ship and then it goes like um all the way back into kind of god's eye view and you just see ships upon ships through the horizon to the point that there's no way they could have sailed that close together because of the water disturbance. But <laughs> anyway, um, uh, so you get this this huge listing here of this. Um, and I don't know, I found it to be a slog, but in a sense, I did appreciate it. What, what did you think, Dave?
0: Um, it reminded me of, this is gonna be a very weird comparison, but it reminded me of, um, you know, like political parties when they have their convention. So like the Democratic National Convention or the Republican mm-hmm. National Convention. And each state has to officially give their delegates to the nominee and they go state by state. (laughs) And it's like the great state of Alabama. And then like, blah, 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 about what's great about Alabama. And then like, we give our six votes to Biden. And it's Mm -hmm. like, they do that for every state and, um, every state's like really pumped about their state and man. There are some states i do not care about <laughs> uh, <laughs> but i i think it's like that and you know the the reason part of the reason for like literally for that is like all of the it's to reward all of the, like people on the ground who like did so much work for yeah either the republican or the democratic party of like getting out voters organizing all of that it's like their moment to like have some recognition Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think I feel like that this book was kind of the same way where it was like, okay, this is a shout out to like your ancestors or this is a shout out to like your geographic area. Like like um, in some ways, like I think I feel like graduate like school graduations operate in the same way where it's like here's (laughs) a list of like 250 kids and Mm -hmm. taken as a whole. It's just like eye glazing and brain numbing. But like for (laughs) each individual one, like it's a special moment for that. Person or that that family, Um, yeah, that's kind of what it was reminding me of. That same dynamic of for someone who like doesn't have a kid in this or doesn't have like a like I'm not from these these Greek places. Like I really none of those like sparked of like, although I will say some of them did spark where it was like, oh, I've heard of that person before. Like when they like oh. mentioned Odysseus, I was like, oh, like yeah. I know that guy. Like, Hey,
1: you cheer. You stood up and cheered. <laughs> <Yeah>. for, <laughs> I
0: was like for the delicate from Ithaca. <laughs> um, yeah. So that, that was kind of what it reminded me of um, the, uh, and I, and I think part of it too is like, And this 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 might not be true, but this is kind of what I was doing in my head with it is like I tied it back into like everyone has to get their shout out because like that's the honor that's owed to them. And in like so much of this book is about dishonor and like people getting Mm -hmm. cheated of like what's what's their due. And I think like this, uh, this is maybe like a, a like a meta level. It's like this. This is the poem that's going to list out every single person every single ship that was there and we're gonna list out every single person that were that's dies because like we don't want to cheat anybody of their their moment of glory
1: yeah yeah and uh i don't know i just thought like maybe this is this is the part where you hear your family or your tribe and then it's like now you do a bathroom break and grab a quick lamb leg (laughs) and come back. that's true that this if you're at a festival
0: it's like all right we're yeah. we're waiting for we're waiting for whoever and then like as soon as you get that like, all right like, we can we can
1: go for yep. for a few hours now go get a euro and come back
0: <laughs> uh one okay so one of the one of the other things that i wanted to talk a little bit about in terms of uh kind of the different representation of warfare itself was mm-hmm. the um the weapons like the arms and armor and yeah. the, the backstories um given to to those um and i think one one thing that we like in modern warfare um because we have uh like a, an industry around creating weapons at mass scale um mm-hmm. the the weapons themselves are all uniform and there's not uh there's not like per- well, you know, they they don't come with personal touches, with with some exceptions. But there's there's you know everyone's M4 rifle. Ooh, is it an M4? <laughs> everyone's M6 rifle. <laughs> Leave in whichever one's right. <laughs> um. the,
1: the the people who. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to this, to hearken back to when men were men. We'll we'll write it and correct you. <laughs> okay, uh,
0: your rifle. Um, all of all of those look exactly the same when they when they're given to the soldiers. But mm-hmm. one thing that I kind of liked about um, in the Iliad is we get a lot of background of the weapons themselves. Um, so I wanted to read uh, one to give uh, kind of a taste of this. Um, and this is, um, Odysseus getting armed for, for battle. Ah. Um, and this is in book 10, uh, a little after line 300, maybe line 305 or so. Okay. Um, and there are a lot of names in this. (laughs) I'm going to pronounce them all correctly. Uh, Miranus gave Odysseus a bow, quiver and sword and over his head he set a helmet made of leather. Inside it was crisscrossed taut with many thongs, outside the gleaming teeth of a white-tusked boar, ran round and round in rows, stitched neat and tight. A master craftsman's work, the cap in its center, padded soft with felt. The wolf himself, Atacalus, lifted that splendid headgear out of Ilion once. He stole it from Orminius's son, Amnator, years ago. Breaching his sturdy palace walls one night, then passed it on to Amphimidamas, Cytherea-born, Scandia-bound. Amphimidamas gave it to Molus, a guest gift once that Molus gave to Merenius, his son, to wear in battle, and now it encased Odysseus's head, snug around his ba- his brows. Um, so that's just kind of one example out of many. Um, mm-hmm. But what I think is interesting about that is, like, in the same way that you would get like a backstory for a person, it's like each of these items, um, whether it's you know a helmet or a, a spear or a sword or a shield or, or what have you, are imbued with backstories themselves. Um, and I thought that was kind of a cool uh, contrast to like how we think about warfare today, where it's the weapons, the arms and armor don't really play that much of a role. Here it's like a um, the objects themselves have so much history.
1: And that made me think of probably your favorite book, Book Eighteen, mm-hmm. which is the Shield of Achilles, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there's a whole lot of sweet things that go in there other than the making of this shield, but uh, you know, with with the bequeathing of the shield upon him there from Smith, <laughs> Agent Smith, <laughs> uh. That it's also a thing that's kind of, he's not able to get one with a history because the type of person that Achilles is, you know, part man, part God, but also the occasion upon which he's about to smote ruin upon these people is something that is unique and is something that is unprecedented. And so I think they th- that was a reason why they spent so much time with like, you need you need a special shield for this. Yeah. And Um, and
0: just to set some context for this, so Achilles, when he eventually does start to fight, he doesn't have his armor that he would usually have because he's lent it to his... um, dear friend shall we say patroclus Uh um, to fight in his stead and patroclus takes his armor um, because he wants to look like achilles so that the uh the trojans are afraid of him but then when patroclus is killed the armor is stripped from his body so achilles literally doesn't have his armor so he has to get armor made um and his mother goes to uh the god hephaestus who is um, from Greek mythology, kind of the famously sort of ugly and deformed um, fire god, who uh, <laughs> even though he's you know physically repulsive makes these beautiful uh, pieces of of, uh, of work. Um, and then there's, uh, as, as TJ just said, there's this long description of the shield that he makes for Achilles um, that goes on and on in terms of not just it being a well-made shield, but there's a, a very intricate art piece on the shield itself. Um do you do you recall some of the things that are on that shield, TJ?
1: Um not recall, but I'm flipping right now through there trying to find it. Do you want to uh um
0: I'll i I'll try to try to do this from I, I kind of remember a few of them. So there's okay. there's some cosmology in terms of just like stars, sun, um, you know, sky, all of that. And then there are different scenes. I think there's a wedding scene there is a scene of like farming. Yep. There is a scene of, um, I think, like peop- uh, shepherds defending their flock from wolves. Um, there's yes. this, there's a scene of like warfare. Um, a,
1: a king's estate where harborers labored, a thriving vineyard loaded with clusters, uh, a herd of longhorn cattle, and a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. As he, as I was reading that, I was like, man, Hephaestus, you're going through a lot of trouble on this. Um, and it's going to get shattered." <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> not, not that these pictures aren't pretty, but maybe make sure it can block spears. I don't know. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and particularly Hector, who is like the famous spearman, yeah. you know, so it's like, you're spending a lot of time on this and it's going to get splintered in a moment. Yeah.
0: Um. um, did you have any, uh, so I, the, I I did a little bit of reading on this. It it doesn't seem like anybody has like a really good theory about what's depicted on the shield. I I saw some some scholars were thinking like this is um an idea of like uh the Greek uh like almost like a, a like a, a a encyclopedia or like their mm. version of like here are all of the things like of knowledge that we know about whether it's farming, whether it's warfare, whether it's the cosmos. Um, another scholar pointed out, which I thought was interesting, that uh, a lot of these are showing two opposing forces. So you have the sun and the moon. You have a mm-hmm. uh, warfare versus like peace. You have um, the shepherd defending against the wolves, that there's there's some kind of order in that uh, tension between between two opposing forces. Uh, it's kind of in the same way that you have the poem of Trojans versus versus Greeks. Um, but did you have any ideas of why, why Hephaestus is doing this or what the, that sort of tableau represents?
1: Well, not until you asked me to think about it just now, but uh, there are two noble cities It says filled with mortal men, which I think is an interesting um, way to point out, you know, mortal men, because it's a bit of foreshadowing there with The way Achilles' death is foreshadowed and then not really delivered upon, right? But that he is, you know, part god, part man, but the shield is filled with these mortal men. Um, There's a lot of description of the wedding scene. Um, You know, the choirs, the singing on high, the women singing, the men dancing. uh, People amassed there. And then right afterward, a fight seems to break out at the wedding. Um, streaming into the marketplace where a quarrel had broken out and two men struggled over the blood price for a kinsman just murdered. So that, that could be another example you're talking about of these kind of, uh, bipolarities mixing into one scene that it is a, a wedding, which is supposed to be joyous and beginning of new life that runs right into a squabble over like the, the price of someone's death and then results in more killing there. Um, so that's just, it's something that kind of popped up as I was reading back through here again, but um, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of all I have with the, with the shield.
0: Yeah. You you mentioned too, that there were other interesting things in that book in particular. Um, what, what, were oh. you kind
1: of- Dave, the- <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. Uh, can I read for a bit?
0: Absolutely. Go for it.
1: This is going to get kind of long, so put me on like 1.5 speed right now. But this is when they bring back news that Patroclus had died. Mm. This is so good. All right, here we go.
0: What, what, uh, can you remind <clears> us what <throat> line are we at? Uh,
1: well, if you have the Fagal's version, which if you don't have the Fagal's version, what are you doing? We're at uh, line like 24 okay. of book 18. So the captain reported... A black cloud of grief came shrouding over Achilles, both hands clawing the ground for soot and filth. He poured it over his head, fouled his handsome face, and black ashes settled into his fresh clean war shirt, Overpowered in all his power sprawled in the dust, Achilles lay there, fallen tearing his hair, defiling it with his own hands, and the women he and Patroclus carried off as captives caught their grief in their hearts and keened and wailed. Out of the tents they ran to wring the great Achilles. All of them beat their breasts with clenched fists, sank to the ground. Each woman's knees gave way. Antilochus, kneeling near, weeping uncontrollably, clutched Achilles' hands as he wept his proud heart out, for fear he would slash his throat with an iron blade. Achilles suddenly loosed a terrible, wrenching cry, and his noble mother heard him, seated near her father, the old man of the sea, in the salt-green depths, and she cried out in turn, and immortal sea-nymphs gathered round their sister, all the nereids dwelling down the sounding depths, they all came rushing now. And then he lists a bunch of them, um, rushing up, skipping a bit, uh, The silver cave was shimmering full of sea nymphs, all in one mounting chorus beating their breasts as Thetis launched the dirge. Hear me sisters, daughters of Nereus, so you all will know it well. Listen to all the sorrows welling in my heart. I am agony. Mother of grief and greatness, oh my child, yes, I gave birth to a flawless mighty son, the splendor of heroes, and he shot up like a young branch, like a fine tree I reared him, the orchard's crowning glory, but only to send him off in the beak ships to Troy, to battle Trojans. Never again will I embrace him striding home through the doors of Peleus' house, and long as I have him with me still alive, looking into the sunlight, he is racked with anguish, and I, I go to his side. Nothing I can do. Nothing I do can help him. Nothing. But go I shall to see my darling boy. To hear what grief has come to break his heart while he holds back from battle. Damn, that's some good stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love, first of all, you know, Achilles is raging for 18 bucks. (laughs) And then this this breaks him. um, The death of his dear friend um patroclus and it it goes from rage to grief um and i don't know if it's because patroclus is so close to him or if homer's suggesting that at the absolute like extension of rage the next like the next phase of emotion then is grief and that you cannot become sort of any more enraged that he you you just break and he you know uh, it, it shrouds over him. He's clawing at the dirt. He's sullying the things that are beautiful about him. The people around him think he might kill himself. Mm-hmm. But then also that he yells so... his yells, like, reverberate to the depths of the ocean that all of the sea nymphs come and cry with him. But I love that line that the mom has about I am agony. Yeah, um, yeah. We, we get these really wonderful... We can expand on this later, but these really wonderful apostrophes... Uh, You know, referring to things as though they are people that aren't, but also these metaphors all throughout the poem. And that's a great one where it's like, I'm not sad. I'm not worried. I am agony. Mm -hmm. Um, And that I know that, you know, the thing she's talking about here that's so tragic is like, I gave birth to this flawless, mighty son who should have been fine. But now I know that he's going to Troy and he's not going to come back. Um, I I don't know. I just think it's a, it's such a great passage. It's probably my favorite, like 50 lines of the,
0: yeah. um... Well, I especially like in that scene too. the, um, the way that grief is so manifested in the physical nature of these people's Mm -hmm. bodies. So Achilles Mm -hmm. like falls to the, to the ground. And you said like, he's fouling his handsome face. He's like literally clawing the ground with his, with his hands. Um, and then the women are beating their breasts and it's yeah. like it's not just like an emotional response in terms of just like what you're feeling, but it's like physically what your body is going through as, mm-hmm. a, as a process of grief. Um, yeah. And I think that's that's kind of uh, important. And like later in the book, we get uh, who the, who his mother goes to see is this God, Hephaestus, who like also bears the scars of deformity. Um, mm-hmm. that it's like in some way, grief doesn't just change you on an emotional level, but it literally changes you physically, um, as like, a, as like a, a scar that you wear. Um, I think too. It's defacing. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And I think, I think his mother, you know, it's so, um, I think she was like one of the the characters that really has a lot of that pathos throughout where it's like, she is, um, on the one hand, like loves her son so much and knows what's going to happen to him and just cannot do anything to stop it. Um, yeah, and that's like, when, she, when you, you mentioned that line of like, I am anguish, like that's the, that's the part where I think like, there's a lot of good, um, parent, parent grieving in this poem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we get later, much later in the book, uh, 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 Priam, or priams yeah. uh, grieving mm-hmm. over over hector when he when he's killed and i think like that idea of um being not having control of the of the hardship that's going to come to your children is especially well done um in this yeah. poem
1: yeah and because it also i think requires them having this submission to in this case fate but these forces of the world that are outside of your control and that I'm, you know, I'm not a parent, but I've heard it said that, um, you know, parents, the thing that they want when you have that little baby is like, well, I've got it right here and I can protect it from all harm. And then the bigger we get and the more we grow up, the less your parents are able to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, now I talk to my parents like once or twice a week and they'll be like, Hey, if there's anything we can do, let us know. But I, they can't, protect me from all harm <laughs> you know yeah um,
0: yeah um and in terms of parents and, and children like they this kind of reminded me of um so one of the the reasons that achilles is so close to patroclus is they're kind of in like a way like foster brothers um where mm-hmm. patroclus was uh, exiled from his original family for for killing a man and then had to come and live with achilles Um, And we get a we get a mirroring of that where the reason that Thetis can uh, Achilles's mother can go to Hephaestus is that um, her family cared for Hephaestus after he was thrown from Mount Olympus. Um, And I think there's like a cool way in which this poem like is in some ways like is very inclusive in like what counts as a family and what counts as like people you can grieve for where it's like it's not just your you know, biological offspring, but there's a lot of instances where, um, kind of what we would today call like foster parents can, can just have, or or foster siblings have as much attachment to, to the people too.
1: Well, and what's interesting about that too, is it kind of sets up then the way in which Achilles and Priam are able to come to kind of a ceasefire, excuse me, near the end is that Achilles tells him, and I could I can find the line if we have a minute, but he basically is like, "Look, I know you're going through some tough loss, and you probably would like to have his body back. and here's a here's like a a truce I'll, I'll ransom it to you, <laughs> you know, um, and that's not something that really seems like Achilles would have done earlier or that anybody else in the in the poem would have done. And it seems like it's maybe empathy born out of a shared experience of loss, even though it was not the same person that they lost. Um, And you get a sense there that if that emotion was shared 20 years ago, this war would have been over because earlier it's all about, you know, I have to fight for my kinsmen, but the end of the play, or sorry, the end of the poem seems to get to a possibility for, Sympathy and empathy across national boundaries.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's I think that's definitely true. That 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 you know, it's the it's the shared grief that eventually lets them kind of not necessarily reconcile, but have this have this truce. You mentioned too that the the uh, Hector's father is going to recover the body. Um, that's another thing that that around the grieving process that I think is. Um, in some ways, like we, we still share this, but in other ways, I kind of struck me as strange is how insistent um, both the Greeks and the Trojans are in the poem of recovering bodies, doing yeah. honor to the bodies um, on the flip side, doing di- like strangely dishonored things to dead bodies, yeah. to corpses. Holy cow. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the one that I, so the, the one that you read, I thought was a great in terms of uh, kind of emotionally powerful passage the book though um where so they after patroclus is is killed there's a whole book where they are just fighting over his body um mm-hmm. and that struck i don't know how it struck you it struck me as almost a little slapstick in um i don't think it's supposed to come across as slapstick but as a modern reader i'm like they're like tugging at it and then they drop it and then they have to fight again and then like the other side gets it and then the, and it's it just seemed like so. Um, uh kind of like uh, strange in a way where it's like our our culture has changed to a point where it's like we wouldn't risk that much for a body, even though Mm-mm. like we do respect the bodies of the dead in, in other ways too um but yeah. did did you have other uh examples where you were you were thinking
1: yeah, in book twenty two with the death of hector mm-hmm. um what's interesting is you know both Patroclus and Hector, once they're dead, are described as beautiful. Um, that their bodies are beautiful, and you know it says Achilles brandished his brandish high in his right hand, the spear bent on Hector's death, scanning his splendid body. where to pierce it best? question mark <laughs> um, and uh yeah, uh, and then we get there, right, that there's uh, one part that's near his collarbone that is exposed, and Achilles drives his spear in there, uh but doesn't slash the windpipe. Okay, so he dies. And Hector even said, like, in his dying breaths. He's like, look, give my body to my friends to carry home again so Trojan men and Trojan women can do me honor with fitting rites of fire once I am dead. Um, but then on the next page, around, around line 430, but brilliant Achilles taunted Hector's body, dead as he was. Die, die, for my own death. I'll meet it freely wherever Zeus and the other deathless gods would like me to bring it on. Skipping down all of them gazing wonderstruck at the build and marvelous lithe beauty of hector this is a corpse now remember um, and not a man came forward who did not stab his body glancing forward a comrade laughing ha look here how much softer he is to handle now this hector than when he was gutted our ships with roaring fire that I wrote in my notes WTF. Like they all come by and just take turns yeah. stabbing him. And they're like, yeah, she's really soft now. Yeah. yeah, this is way easier
0: when he doesn't fight back. <laughs> yeah.
1: It was it's so weird. But I think again for for what you were saying with slapstick, that was one I, I did laugh here. Um and I don't think it's intended to be funny because I think that their reverence toward dead I mean, in the sense it's funny for us because there's an underlying reverence toward dead bodies that you don't desecrate them. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but so it's like, wait, what the hell's going on here? But uh, I don't know. That was just that was a very strange scene well, to me. And even um, to
0: to add further context to that, so Hector's body is preserved by. Is it Apollo that is doing? Yeah. It? So the god, the god Apollo. I think it's Apollo. Is like with his magic God powers is making sure the body doesn't decompose and making sure that even though it's getting stabbed all of these times, it's like staying beautiful. It's staying preserved.
1: Yeah. Can I, can I read that? Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's in book uh, 24. It's, it's kind of like, you know, what they, say, what they say about the Catholic saint bodies that they're incorruptible. Mm-hmm. If you've ever seen an incorruptible body, that's not incorruptible. <laughs> like, they look like shit. <laughs> um, but this, is, uh, this is the twelfth day he's lain there. This is, we're talking about Hector's body. But his body has not decayed, not in the least, nor have the worms begun to gnaw his corpse. The swarms that devour men who fall into battle. Skipping a bit it's marvelous. go see for yourself how he lies there, fresh as dew, the blood washed away, and no sign of corruption. All his wounds sealed shut wherever they struck yeah, yeah, um, and it is it, they they say the gods love him dearly, that's why the gods love him dearly um, so I don't know I thought that was that was uh interesting and unexpected
0: um so do you, do you think this is uh or do you have any theories about why they had such a um reverence towards the like the dead body itself like the corporeal form of of death in that way um
1: i'm sure there's a smarter answer with people who know greek culture better but two things i thought of just kind of immediately is um they that that is the thing that really and truly separates them from the gods Mm. and that's the thing that the gods don't have is that corporeal form and it's Mortal, which is a bummer but it's also um you know literally incarnate it's material that allows them to participate in the world in ways that the gods can't um which we see as something that is kind of interesting about achilles dual nature um yeah what do you think
0: um so again this is maybe where my ignorance of of Greek culture and mythology comes through. I I was curious if like on a on a literal level does the preservation of the body have to do with the afterlife? Does like mm-hmm. um does like Hector you know in in um Hades now like because his body is is buried in the funeral rites like is it easier for him to pass into like the good version of hades that that's where i was i was curious um and again that, that's just i don't i don't know enough about kind of greek uh greek cult greek mythology to to know that mm-hmm. um yeah but i like i like what you said too about the this is what kind of separates the the mortals from the gods um and especially the 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 sacrifices that are offered to the gods the um kind of made, you know, like what we would maybe call like the barbecue scenes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like those, those I always thought were, even though they're also very violent, I thought those are always some of the more beautiful passages where it's mm-hmm. so um, it's, it so indulges in the, like the fleshiness of the set. Sa- oh, do you have one? Do you have one queued up? Oh no, yeah. I was oh. going to, I
1: was going to try to find one as you were, as you were talking. Yeah. Cool.
0: um, And th- those are the parts where like, uh, this is going to sound strange, but I always find those like the cozy parts of Homer. um, Mm. where I remember, uh, you know, I've read the odyssey um, back in high school. And like, those were the passages where I, as as I was reading them in the Iliad, I felt a little bit of nostalgia for like, Oh, I love these, um, these sacrifice, these offering scenes to the gods Um, because the, the poetry of it too is, you know, even in translation, it's like, so um, uh, as I said, like it's so indulgent in the, 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 the sort of physical nature itself, but then it's also yeah. like, you know,
1: has this larger
0: spiritual significance.
1: Um the I, I thought of like it's Trojan tailgating, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I do have one now, um, just if you want to hear. Uh the noble heralds brought on the victims, mark for the gods to seal and bind the oaths. They mix the contender's wine in the large bowl and rinse the warlord's waiting hands with water. Atreus's son drew forth the dagger, always slung at his battle sword's big sheath, cut some tufts from the lamb's heads, and heralds passed them round to Achaean and Trojan captains. Then Atreus's son, agonem stood in behalf of all, lifted up his arms, and prayed in a deep, resounding voice. Um, so that's one of the smaller barbecue scenes, but, uh we get them cutting up some lambs there yeah
0: and there's there's multiple instances throughout the throughout the poem where we get these these scenes yeah
1: Mm -hmm. yeah of animal cruelty
0: (laughs) (laughs) well it's better than than we mentioned before at the the patroclus's funeral they they had a a sacrifice of trojan captives before that's (laughs) true
1: that's true um because achilles was extra pissed (laughs) yeah
0: um can i actually can i get can i read one of the sacrifice passages yeah um so this is this is one from really early on this is book two um okay it says uh book two allow round line 495 uh and so agamemnon prayed but the son of kronos would not bring his prayer to pass not yet The father accepted the sacrifice as true, but doubled the weight of thankless, ruthless war. Once the men had prayed and flung the barley, first they lifted back the heads of the victims, slit their throats, skinned them, and carved away the meat from the thigh bones, and wrapped them in fat, a double fold sliced clean and topped with strips of flesh. And they burned these on a cleft stick, peeled and dry, spitted the vials, held them over Hephaestus's flames, and once they'd charred the thighs and tasted the organs, they cut the rest into pieces, pierced them with spits, roasted them to a turn, and pulled them off the fire. Um, And I just love the, like, again, the visceral nature of... uh, Carving away the meat from the thigh bones, wrapping them in fat, um, putting them Mm -hmm. on spits—like it's like obviously it's a very gruesome kind of image. But there's um again like I just love that uh the the indulgence in those those physical qualities of it.
1: Um, How do you how do you think that connects as you were reading that? I was thinking of a point you made earlier about the like permeability of the human body throughout the slaughter scenes. Um And I hear echoes there with the sacrifices. What do you make of that connection?
0: Yeah, I, I feel like the like the passage I just read, um, even though it's like literally just as violent and just as like deconstructing a body, it's mm-hmm. it seems like so, so much more reverential than the death scenes that we get of like actual people. So like, Mm. like those, those, you know, top three deaths that you read earlier, um, (laughs) like those are, those are brutal and there's, they're very particular, but like Mm -hmm. they read as disgusting. Like they read as like, that is a gross and like, oh, like it makes you wince. Like, I don't think this makes you, you know, obviously I'm not a cow, but like, I don't think this, (laughs) this makes you wince in the same way, even though it is like working with the same, the same matter. Um, I don't know. What do you you think on that? Well,
1: do uh, hold on. Do you think uh, that's because like a a form of ethical speciesism where it's like, you know, slaughter the cow, I don't care, but the human, it's grosser. Or do you think it's really on the level of the text?
0: I think it's more on the level of the text because I think I do too. Yeah. Because I think like you could theoretically write this in a gross way where you're like, and then I took the cow's eyeballs out and we like cut open mm-hmm. its skull and the brain was mushy and, and like yeah. in that kind of way, yeah. but it's like, it's not like that. Like it's, it's still like, it's very detailed, but like, you know, thigh bones wrapped in fat, um, you know, roasting on the spit, uh, this, this reference to Hephaestus's flames. Like we have an invocation mm. of the God of fire. Like it seems like the the details themselves are not meant to be like, gross or or icky but are meant to be more like um you know not like not disrespectful to the animals either like they're offered to the to the gods in a way that like is heightening the flesh rather than um you know using it as a grotesque
1: yeah that it kind of elevates and sanctifies it through the ritual sacrifice whereas with the humans it's much more of a Kind of needless carnal slaughter,
0: yeah, and that and that might tie back into like why there's so much insistence on um preserving the bodies, the dead corpses is perhaps mm-hmm. because they've gone through these brutal deaths that are like you know so not necessarily dishonoring, but like the, the body itself is being hacked up that there needs to be some like uh healing of the body in order to like get that that dignity back,
1: yeah, that's a great point, yeah, that's a great point.
0: Um, one other topic i wanted to touch on i'd wrote, written down as like um sight as a vulnerable sense of yeah. of like everyone in this poem is either like getting getting tricked by a god in disguise or having a mm-hmm. literal like magic mist cloud blind them Um, Or just like not seeing the truth, like literally not seeing what's true and what's false. Um, And I think one one uh, passage maybe to start us off on this topic is um, about Agamemnon. Okay. Uh, and this is in book book two. So not not too far uh, from what I was just reading around line five sixty. And as I was as I was reading the early parts of this, I was trying to think of like, is Agamemnon a good king or not <laughs> and like he he doesn't seem to be that respected but then like why is he still inspiring all these soldiers to to fight for him um, so let me read this passage and kind of give you a, a, a an idea to work off of so the army's grouping now as seasoned goat herds spit their wide ranging flocks into packs with ease when herds have mixed together down the pasture so the captains form their tight platoons detaching right and left moving up for action And in their midst, in the midst strode, sorry, and there in their, in the midst strode powerful Agamemnon, eyes and head like Zeus, who loves the lightning, great in the girth like Ares, god of battles, broad through the chest like sea lord Poseidon, like a bull rising head and shoulders over the herds, a royal bull rearing over his flocks of driven cattle. So imposing was Atreus' son, so Zeus made him that day towering over fighters, looming over armies. Um and, hmm. and I wanted to highlight that part of like that passage because this is so it's Agamemnon getting ready to like gather all the people for for war, um, uh, for renewed war. And it's like, why are they following him? And it's like it just seems it's like he looks the part of like a good war king. Like he looks yeah, like Zeus, yeah. he looks like Ares, he looks like Poseidon Uh, he looks like a bull that's, you know, ready to fight. But like in reality, the other pictures we get of him is like, he's not fit for this at all. Like he's petty. Uh, he doesn't understand that he can't piss off Achilles. He's, he's, Uh he's kind of a coward in certain parts, but because he looks the part he's able to like in some way, fool people into believing he has some type of, of legitimacy.
1: Yeah. That's interesting because I'm going to bring in the bad movie again. Um, You know, when I when I read this and you hear about him being such a like effective king that commands all these people, you would expect to cast someone, I don't know, like The Rock or someone like that. But in the movie Troy, they cast Brian Cox, who I think is a brilliant choice because, you know, he later, earlier he played Hannibal Lecter. He later plays uh, the dude on Succession. I'm sorry, I didn't, Kendall, not Kendall, the, the main guy. On Succession, And so he's somebody that you can understand, like, could command people. But he's also, no offense to Brian Cox, he's a brilliant actor, he's not very attractive. And he is chubby and he's short. And, you know, he doesn't look like this sort of, you know, leader of men into war. And yet, even when you're, like I said, when you're watching the film, he talks about like, oh, everybody follows everything I say. And you're kind of like... Wait, why? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this there's this quality about him that I think is in the, the poem, but I think is really captured by having it be Brian Cox, which is that he really sells being a, a commander and a leader of men, despite other other ways in which the character um, isn't really up for that task, mm-hmm. if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and I you mentioned the the film like the brad pitt casting of achilles like that is <laughs> yeah. like such a famous like like i i can't yeah. even imagine achilles and not see brad pitt um right like he looks like he looks the part um
1: yeah this, there's a funny uh I, I've, been, I've been re-watching the movie recently the director's cut which is three hours and 14 minutes um you don't need to watch the director's cut uh he's not very good in it though Brad Pitt which shocks me because he's he's perfect casting for it but he seems to be kind of um kind of zombie walking sleepwalking through it and what's interesting is along with you know him and Brian Cox Brian Cox said the first time he saw him on set quote I'm straight and I was like dang that man is beautiful <laughs> um, and so there there is i think like that that kind of otherworldly quality of of you know um the casting's actually pretty good in that movie mm-hmm. i think so.
0: Um, but yeah, so the that that idea. So the going back to the sight part of it, though, like so, Agamemnon's able to use in this scene, like him looking like a king, to inspire that. And I think, like a mm-hmm. lot of um other instances throughout the poem, it's like people's eyesight is a is spot of vulnerability, whether they're um uh, misguided by a god in disguise, or whether they're tempted by you know someone's beauty to do something foolish. Um, that often we get this repeated of like don't trust your eyes, um, or on the on the other side of it, sometimes a god will come down and let them see something that like is is vital for them to see. Where it's like there's the person you need to get to 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 win the battle, or you know that's yeah. that's that's that god in, in disguise. Like you can now see their true form.
1: And to that point, um, Patroclus, when <laughs> why does Achilles? kill patroclus he thinks he's
0: uh you mean hector does hector kill uh, patroclus yeah, th- oh yeah <laughs> thank you thank you yeah. yeah he
1: thinks he's achilles yeah he thinks he's achilles yeah. right yeah uh because he's in achilles's armor and when patroclus gets hit it's described as uh patroclus never saw him coming Right. Mm-hmm. And Apollo, like, knocks his helmet off. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would piss me off if I were fighting a war and the gods just come around and, like, <laughs> fuck around <laughs> with stuff. Yeah. Like, um, like Casper, the, uh, the dick ghost. You know? <laughs> um, and uh, and then when he gets hit. Right. Patroclus stunned by the spear. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's several other times, too, where when people die, it's described as uh, dark or or red coming down over their eyes,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, which I love that metonymy of it's not mentioned as blood. It's red, red poured forth from his face uh, and the dark came over his eyes. I, I think that's really cool. Yeah. Um,
0: Another instance I, that just came to mind, too, is um, when when Hector is is running away from Achilles um, Mhm. I think it's uh I think it's Athena one I think it's Athena who disguises herself as Hector's brother and is like stop running like you can you can fight him now and it's Oh yeah. Um another instance where again like he should not be he should not be trusting his his sight right now like he, this is this is a god come mm-hmm. to trick him.
1: Okay, and I wonder this is a huge stretch and this I find I'm very silly in saying this. Supposedly Homer was blind Mm -hmm. Do, do you think there's any sort of connection here
0: um i don't know in terms of so there the one other thing to think that maybe adds to that is i think in uh not just like the iliad and the odyssey but in in greek myths uh in general there's this trope of the blind um prophet that, um, that in some ways, like losing, like, you know, like daredevil, like, uh, losing, losing (laughs) your literal sight gives you the Mm -hmm. the power of prophecy, gives you the power of like a deeper Mm -hmm. sight. Um, Mm -hmm. so I don't know, you know, um, whether, and that might be part of like, you know, whether there was a literal Homer and whether he was literally blind, that might be where that, that idea comes from of like, Mm -hmm. his blindness could be as like, okay, he's, he's, literally blind but he has this like ability to see into uh the the deeper truth
2: yeah yeah okay
0: so let's talk a little bit about um achilles's quote dear friend patroclus <laughs> um yeah tj what what did you know about patroclus before you read the poem and then did the did the poem itself did the reading of the poem itself kind of change or reinforce some of those notions
1: yeah so this this falls under the poem... I expected versus poem I got that we kind of kicked off the show with, which was in my memory and imagination that Patroclus and Achilles I thought were romantic partners, I thought they were lovers, and I could swear that was in my first reading of the Iliad, and they have since cut it out um, <laughs> it's it's also not in not in the film Troy, um but it's not in the Iliad. I think you can read into this strong homosocial bonds. I think you could possibly read a non-sexual homosexual relationship, if that makes any sense. Um, Homer certainly doesn't go out of the way to really be like, I don't know how you would just be like, and they never slept together or something. But uh, that that, uh, idea of the two of them being Romantically involved, I think, comes from actually from other texts around the time, and not so much from the Iliad.
0: Yeah, well, not even texts from the time; it's it's texts from way later that were from classical Greek rather than uh, Homeric Greek.
1: Yeah. So specifically, because I looked this up, um, su- supposedly it's referenced in um, Symposium, Plato's Symposium. In one of the stories. And then there are scraps of a lost play called the uh, Myrmidons by Aeschylus from around 5th century B.C. Um, And I think there was another mention somewhere. um, In like kind of the post classical period. So interestingly, it seems like their same sex love was not a part of the original like (laughs) the the og story but that as cultures continued to tell and adapt this story it became something that was reflected in things that those societies wanted to discuss or represent is that a fair way to put it
0: yeah and i think this is um this is a really interesting kind of dynamic that um you know i think modern readers and I'm, i'm guilty of this um at times, too, is sometimes like when a book that is or sorry, a, a text that is so old, ah uh, that we're we're uh, reading it is like sometimes we forget that, like this is a text that has been interpreted multiple times throughout history and is also like written as historical fiction itself. Um, so mm-hmm. one one thing that i that I think is that we haven't set the context for is so the the Iliad as a poem was composed people think correct me if i'm wrong in like the seventh century bc
1: i think that's correct
0: but the events of the poem are actually taking place like 400 years before that
1: i think that's correct as well okay
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and we're both experts in ancient history <laughs> ancient greek history yes. so yes. definitely we're definitely right about this um, <laughs> so so regardless of whether those those dates are exactly right though i think that there's a there's a tendency um and maybe this is kind of like as i was my my idea of the iliad before is you know literally i didn't think there was a time when greek gods were like interacting with mortals but like i kind of like all of that kind of gets mushed together in just like Old Greek shit and all of that happened at the same time. <laughs> yes, but really, yeah. this is this this poem for the for the contemporaries of Homer. This would be as if like we were telling a poem about the 1600s, and mm-hmm. like so that's like we're writing about a different culture from ours that is in some ways like the birth of the birth of our culture or, or like can, uh, sort of has a line to our culture. Um,
1: well, I, I think and it's it's worth stating that there is. Uh, scholarly dispute about whether this war even really happened or not. I think now um the <laughs> the thought is so some big war happened in the area right um but that it's not even really clear what the status of this as a ho- historical event actually is.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, all of that to say, though, is um, my kind of conception of the the Patroclus question of whether he's like a romantic partner of Achilles or if they're just very close friends or, or foster brothers, um, sort of I mentioned earlier. So, I had been aware of this book, um, this re- more recent novel called The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. Um, okay. And this is. Uh, um, kind of the the a reimagining of the Iliad told th- uh, uh, so, so. Forgive me, I've not actually read it, but I've just I've read about it. It's a reimagining of the book told through Patroclus's, I believe, his perspective, and it takes okay. the the stance that they were they were romantic partners. And
2: mm, okay,
0: I've always thought that that was actually in the Iliad before I before I read it. I have I my my concept was like. Yeah, they were definitely romantic partners and we've kind of, as our culture was like kind of more homophobic, we've erased that from the text where we've pretended that they weren't, but because of our own hangups about it and that this, Mm -hmm. this recent novel is actually going to be like, show you a more, a more accurate portrayal of what their relationship would have been. But I think from the truth actually is that's that's not true that the actual text doesn't really have any evidence for same-sex uh romantic relationship between them and actually where that idea comes from is the the uh the symposium that you had mentioned that that is yeah. actually their reading of their culture back onto this so they're mm-hmm. making that relationship uh Romantic, where actually it wasn't in the original text, and now my my whole conception of that was like actually wrong from 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 the start. Um, all that to say is like that is where I think as modern readers sometimes like when the past is so far in the past, it's hard. It's we have to be careful about differentiating very different cultures in the past. Like classical antiquity is still like very different from. Um, this like ancient, like, like Homeric antiquity, if that makes sense. Yeah,
1: it does. It does. Um, there's something I take this with a grain of salt. This came off Wikipedia. Okay. Uh, so, um, and not from the, the bottom where, you know, that they're actually citing things. This is from the, the middle where someone could just hide bullshit. Uh, but the words that are in the original Greek that are used to describe patroclus in relationship to achilles uh one is hetairos, which means companion or comrade but not companion in the sense of like loving companion companion or comrade in the sense of people who like fought together mm-hmm. um and then the other d- d- uh, way in which he was referred to as the most beloved of achilles achilles favorite Uh, is a philos word which they say denotes love used for family between friends as well as between lovers so the use of that word can muddy the waters of how you're interpreting it because it could mean hey they're like adoptive brothers or hey they're just like really best friends or hey they love each other sexually Mm -hmm. um all kind of tied up in that same word so
0: yeah um yeah. and I I am curious too, like so uh Achilles's wife or lover uh in mm-hmm. it, uh what's her name
1: Briseis? Ba- ba- Bres- Briseis I think something like that. Um mm-hmm. so th- I think part of Briseis? yeah
0: Perseus uh there we go the part of the um I don't know maybe like I don't even want to call it evidence but like part of the argument that that patroclus is is his lover is that like he doesn't really seem to have like that deep emotional connection with her but like i still Mm -hmm. think that makes sense in that like he's literally like stolen her as as like a war prize you know like he didn't didn't grow up (laughs) with her like so that's that's another Mm -hmm. part where i'm like if, if you're arguing it's like well he doesn't seem to love his his lover like his female lover that much it's like well yeah that also makes sense though like
1: Right. Um, He didn't really like woo her. And I mean, she's she is a a captive of war. Yeah, she is literal booty from the war. (laughs) Um.
0: Pause for laughter. Pause for laughter. (laughs) Uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Let me ask. I mean, I think it's an interesting thing to talk about, because as you've indicated, kind of what people think about their relationship reflects more about cultural views of male bonds than it does any sort of, like, what was it actually like? Mm -hmm. Which I think is what makes the conversation interesting. But I'm curious for you, um, does it change how you read the poem at all, if they were lovers or just really, really, really close best brother friends? Um,
0: Yeah, so it's... I I think, like, my... I I, kind of wish, like, it wasn't a question at all, because I think it, like it lends like this, it like kind of very much simplifies what is a complex and deep relationship where like, Mm -hmm. so I think it's like, it's not really that interesting to be like, Oh, like did they sleep together or not? Like that's, you know, like that's like not that interesting of a question, but I think like the, the more meaningful question is why Patroclus of all of the other Greeks that are getting killed? Like why is this guy in particular, um the one that that brings achilles to grief that he uh, eventually starts fighting again um mm-hmm. because like achilles is i mean we we see him like very angry very spiteful throughout so i was curious of like what is it about um this one man like uh you know and i'm not going to offer uh, notes to homer on this but like <laughs> I, I would say like could we get a few scenes of like achilles and patroclus before the war can we get a flashback homer um to maybe see them like growing up or like why like what is it about their bond that is uh, like so so meaningful for achilles
1: yeah and i think that might be why so many people assume that it's homosexual is because when you see him react not just that it snaps him out of a 16 book rage but that you know the the thing i read earlier with the the very bodily like guttural reaction you're going uh this this really seems like more than at least within our culture more than a close friend
0: yeah yeah you know
1: Um, um,
0: i would even say though like later not just achilles like during his funeral games like everybody was was really torn up about it too like it seemed mm -hmm. like patroclus was i don't know like People really liked the guy. Uh, they, yeah. They were all super bummed when he died. <laughs> he was a, he was a good dude. I was like, "Man, there's like 51 <laughs> other people who that be- who we know got killed in this book." Yeah. And you guys mm-hmm. don't seem to care that much about them.
1: We're going to have a whole book about your funeral games, but everybody else gets a paragraph with their eyeballs falling out.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. Um <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh Go. Oh, uh, what, this is a small thing, but, um, Di- Diomedes, Diomedes. Yeah. Yeah. Had you ever heard of that guy before?
1: No. And completely <laughs> forgot about him from the last time I read it. And I, dude's in it a lot. Dude
0: is like, like s- s- MVP candidate on like dark, yeah. dark horse MVP candidate for the Trojan <laughs> yeah. War.
1: If- and he does like, like for sure. His, his <laughs> war In the war is definitely uh, wins above average (laughs) for this guy. Um, But I was like not expecting him to be in it as much as he was. And then he kills so many people. Does he, according to your chart, he kills the most people more than Patroclus does because Patroclus goes on quite a spree in book 16. And then more even than Achilles. Now, Achilles gets a late start. So, um, but, uh, Achilles didn't play the full 48. So. He did not. He did not. Um, and as we mentioned, Diomedes does kill like 15 people in their sleep. Yeah. Um, so he's a little bitch that way. But man, he is. And they have to pull him back a few times. The
0: guy's too good at killing. He's too good at killing Trojans. He's making yeah. the Greeks look bad um yeah the guy uh so i'm looking at the infographic too one other thing i want to point out <laughs> most of these people are getting killed by spears so it's yes. it's 10 rocks 10 deaths by rock 15 deaths by arrows 19 deaths by sword uh 100 deaths by spears mm. um let me just ask a basic question we're we're greeks back then and trojans back then Like, how fucking good at throwing spears were they? Because they seem to have just, like, 50 yards away, I can throw a spear right into your face if I want to. Yeah,
1: that and also, like, this must have had some serious miles per hour on it. Because also, it's like hitting people right in the middle of the shield. And I'm thinking... Wouldn't you have some time to dodge this? But apparently not. Yeah.
0: Or th- wouldn't the shield deflect it? But it just like goes straight through the shield.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so th- this is the physics of the Iliad. Yeah. Uh,
0: I would, that was the one part where it was surprised me. And it was just like every once in a while a god would come in and just like just nudge the spear a little bit off off aim. But mm-hmm. I'm like, man, these guys can really, really work their spears.
1: Yeah. Well, with, with Diomedes again, first of all, he also has a terrifying war cry that he gives before he goes in. Um, and then, but then it says, uh, it calls him reckless and Athena spurs him on to rave against the gods. I forgot that he wounds Aphrodite. Yeah.
0: He fucking wounds a uh-huh. god. I was like, I, I read yeah. that. I was like, can you do that? Is that a thing that happens? Uh, yeah. Uh, speaking of... and,
1: and stabbed Ares in the bowels. Yeah. Hmm.
0: Um. Yeah. Speaking of uh, fighting not people. Um, <laughs> what do you think when Achilles fought
1: those rivers? It, uh, <laughs> I thought of the Lord of the Rings <laughs> uh, <laughs> when Aylwin brings. i uh, sorry. When Arwen <laughs> brings Frodo after he's been stabbed by the Nazgul. Mm-hmm. Into um, the uh, the the house of Elrond, and the horses in the, in the river come and wash them away. Um, that was very hard for me. I'm I'm the type of reader who p- kind of shoots a movie in my head as you're reading, mm-hmm. and this was very difficult to picture what actually was going on here because it kind of describes that people are like he's fighting people for a while and then they kind of turn into rivers.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, I, in my head, I also was thinking of Lord of the Rings horse river people. Um, And I was thinking of like, I was basically thinking of like in a river, this water humanoid comes up and is like fighting Mm -hmm. him. Yeah. Um,
1: and how do you fight water?
0: Great. Great question. Uh, but when well, they answer it, though, with fire, they they set the banks. They set, <laughs> isn't it Hephaestus sets the banks on fire? And that's that's how that's how Achilles escapes from from drowning.
1: Well, and that uh Athena's like, hey, this is not your fate to be swallowed by a river. Man up, dude. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah,
0: that's maybe maybe we should, since we're already talking about that, get to um, other kind of parts of the poem we thought were a little goofy. Um, so I had I'll start us off. I had one. Uh Achilles uh <laughs> Hold on, give me give me a second to find this. So this is uh Achilles after Patroclus has died, um, getting mm-hmm. ready to to avenge him. Uh and he's he's getting on his horse. Uh and Rowan Beauty, the horse with flashing hooves, spoke up from under the yoke. <laughs> oh yeah hold on let me, let me back up <laughs> so this is achilles talking to his horse roan beauty he says roan beauty and charger illustrious foals of lightfoot try hard do better this time bring your chariots chariots here back home alive to his waiting argive comrades once we've through the fighting once we're through the fighting don't let achilles there on the battlefield uh, as you left patroclus dead so first of all He's talking to
1: shaming his horses.
0: horses. He's saying, you guys let Patroclus die. You didn't bring him back. You better not fuck it up again like that. So make sure to like do better, do better horses. And then the fucking horses talk back to him. The horses answer him. And Roan Beauty, the horse with flashing hooves, spoke up from under the yoke bowing his head low so his full mane came streaming down the yoke paths down along the. so that's a
1: little like hair toss right before like
0: (laughs) yes we will save your life this time too master achilles it's like what first of all why is he talking to his horse and why is the horse talking back
1: and, and and the horse like has an excuse. Yeah. But the day of death already hovers near, and we are not to blame, but a great <laughs> god is, and the strong force of fate. Not through our want of speed or any lack of care did the Trojans strip the armor off Patroclus' back. <laughs> yeah, don't blame it us. Was the matchless don't blame us. Yeah.
2: We're just horses. <laughs> oh.
1: And then he said no more. The furry the I almost said furries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the fury struck him dumb. Um yeah, but then, then but then okay.
0: Achilles he's like angry. He's like, yeah. why, why prophesy my doom, horse? <laughs> don't waste <laughs> your breath. I know this. And, you don't think I know this?
1: <laughs> and the fact that he doesn't say like, "Holy shit, my horse spoke." <laughs> yeah. suggests that maybe they've done this before. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that part oh. that part made me laugh out loud. I was like, yeah, "Oh man, it's, it's pretty great." <laughs> I don't remember I don't remember that in the movie
1: no that does not make the movie uh i don't think with the movie there are no gods in the movie um Mm -hmm. at all they briefly mentioned them but wolfgang peterson said he thought it was silly and i think that's actually one of the things that makes the movie not very good Mm -hmm. um it's hard to how do you take the gods out of the iliad yeah you know
0: there was there wasn't not quite as as funny as the horse but there was a moment where i think it was aphrodite like like paris was about to get killed and she just like Plucks him out of out of there <laughs> yeah. and like throws him in bed with helen i was like okay yeah
1: yeah can we talk about paris for a little bit
0: yeah that little, I... that little bitch
1: so that's what my my margin notes say actually uh, uh sorry flipping to book three because that's where we first meet him oh there's another list i didn't mention but when priam's like hey helen uh as These guys are coming to the walls. Can you just tell me about some of these warriors? (laughs) She might have, she must have some eagle eyes because she does. She's like, oh yeah, that one is, uh, but, uh, yeah. So Paris, as soon as magnificent Paris marked a treatise shining among the champions, Paris's spirit shook backing into his friendly ranks. He cringed from death. As one who trips on a snake in the hilltop hollow recoils, suddenly trembling, grips his knees and pallor takes his cheeks and back he shrinks. So he dissolved again in the proud Trojan lines, dreading a magnificent, brave Paris. And then immediately they call him appalling and prince of duty. This is Hector, raked his brother with insults. Mad for women, you lure them all to ruin. Would to a god you had never been born and died unwed. Mm. Damn. And yet I mean he says you thought you were the bravest just cuz you're handsome you have no pith no fighting strength you curse your father your city and all your people your long flowing locks and striking good looks <laughs> but you're a coward and then paris hector you criticize me fairly yes <laughs> <laughs> bro make some good points he spends three three stanzas being like you pretty boy little bitch (laughs) um
0: yeah i i noticed that too everybody is
1: like fuck paris (laughs) yeah yeah um and uh yeah uh is that do you think he is in there as a kind of plot device or do you think this is supposed to reinforce the like quote-unquote toxic masculinity we talked about earlier
0: um yeah so i i think paris does tie into this idea of of what we would like today called toxic masculinity in that it's the way i read him was a man who had been corrupted by a feminine like a woman like helen and that Mm. like he is um unlike unlike the other men in the poem who are taking uh women as like war prizes um and treating them as like property basically like even though he's doing a version of that he's like allowed himself to become feminized as well where he is he's seen as weak and you know other, not that other men aren't aren't are sort of described as beautiful too, but there's a there's a way that his beauty is like beauty without strength or beauty without courage. That in yeah. some way he's like portrayed as like a feminized man. Um,
1: like he's he's pretty, he's not handsome, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, so that that's kind of, how did how did you read Paris? I
1: I, th- I think similarly, it was interesting to me that because I I was thinking about the dynamic between the brothers and. You know, between Hector and Paris and uh, what other kind of ancient texts uh, have have this kind of fraught brother relationship. And I thought of in the Bible, um, Cain and Abel, for one. But then what else I thought more of was the prodigal son Mm. in uh, Jesus's parable. And that Hector would very much be like the son that stayed home and was like, I Hey dad, I've been serving you and now Paris took all your money and was a little fuckboy for a while and then came back and did this. And what's interesting is, you know, cuz the Iliad obviously predates the Bible. Uh, if you use that comparison, the message of Christ's parable is don't be like the older brother, like just be happy that you know your brother returns. The Iliad is kind of like fuck paris be like hector <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and and you know paris doesn't really that i remember have a moment of reckoning uh which was a, a part of greek epic drama was supposed to be you know the, the heroes have the is it called the aristia is that what it's called um i don't know there's the but it's the, that moment of reckoning of realizing your faults and realizing that well, your tragic flaw and that you led to the downfall of people. And Paris doesn't have that. Um, yeah. Now, it, interesting thing about Paris also, and uh, I suppose this is in the Aeneid uh, when we get there, but I don't know. He is the one in certain stories who kills Achilles.
0: That's, yeah, that's what oh. I was going to ask in my, in my, and maybe this is, I, I don't even know if I saw this in Troy, but is it Paris shoots the arrow and then Apollo guides the arrow to Achilles? As he, as... Yeah. Okay.
1: Right into the heel. That one place where he can get wounded. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Which just, that doesn't sit right with me. You know, 3,000 years later, what a raw deal for Achilles.
1: <laughs> there's a there's a great um, Louis C.K. bit about this where he's talking about Achilles when Achilles is talking to his mom and is like, why didn't you just dip my other heel in there? Like, how did you forget this? And he's like, all the shit that your mother did for you and you're complaining because you have one area that you couldn't put a guard on. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh. And I'm yeah, like, Hephaestus. Yeah, right. Stop stop yeah.
0: wasting so much time with that shield. Give me like a little ankle bracelet. <laughs> yeah, no
1: kidding. Yeah. Put any stories <laughs> you want on this ankle bracelet. <laughs>
0: so we had mentioned uh Achilles' uh anger at Agamemnon um and some of the context for this. Uh so Agamemnon has to give up his wife that he's stolen um, because Apollo... Alright, well, hold on. <laughs> let, me, let me try that again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, okay, so the reason that Achilles is mad at Agamemnon is that Agamemnon had taken a priestess of Apollo as his war prize. But Apollo... Yes was upset about that and started uh either sent a a plague or a literal hail of arrows killing a bunch of greeks so they're all like you've got to give back the 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 priestess um so agamemnon does that but then he takes achilles's bride instead um, basically stealing his war prize and achilles takes this as a personal offense Um, and then this is what precipitates Achilles not fighting for, um, the next seven books, seven or eight books of the, of the story as the Greeks start to struggle against the Trojans. Um, and because of this, they send out an emissary, a group of, of guys to try to convince Achilles to put aside his grievance and please, please accept Agamemnon's offer of, of, uh, you know he gives them. He gives them women. A, women, yeah, women and treasure. And now, please yeah. come fight with us. Uh, and TJ, do you want to? Do you want to tell us a little bit about how Achilles responds to this <laughs> request?
1: Well, I love that it, within the women too. He's like, and not just the common whores. You can pick the pretty ones. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, Agamemnon, really, really generous king. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh And they send Odysseus. Why?
0: Oh, because he's a great tactician. Yeah, he's the smartest one.
1: He's very clever. Yeah. Which he which um, he
0: does, um uh doesn't he add a part he's he 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 take like Agamemnon gives him some instructions, but then Achilles or is it Nestor that gives him the instructions? But Achilles also adds um think about this glory that you'll have, Achilles. Because yeah. like Odysseus knows yeah. that really Achilles is not he's not gonna be, you know, moved by just like the material possessions or the or the women. He's gonna be moved by like this call to, to glory or at least Odysseus hopes he will be. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So to give highlights, cause this is like a four page speech that he gives back and it is great. It's worth, it's really worth your time. Uh, but he's like, let me tell you straight out how all of this is going to end right at the beginning. Uh, he says the same honor waits for the coward and the brave. They both go down to death. Uh, so basically the question here is, What, why should I stake my life on the mortal risks of war? And then he goes, oh, by the way, I have killed 12 cities of people. Um. uh, Sorry, 12 I've stormed and sacked from shipboard, 11 I claim by land. So, 23, and then he says, but he still won't give me my woman back, Agamemnon. He keeps the bride I love. Well, let him bed her now, enjoy her to the hilt. Um, He talks about he loved her with all his heart. I won her like a trophy with my spear, but now he's torn my honor from my hands, robbed me, lied to me. Don't let him try to win me over now. I know him too well. He'll never win me over. Yeah, if I can inter- then, interrupt
0: just a second. Too, oh, yeah. Like right before that, he also makes this point that Agamemnon, uh, he, quote, is always skulking behind the lines, safe in his fast ships. And he would take it all. He'd parcel out some scraps, but keep the lion's share. So he throws in this dig that, like, look, I'm Achilles. I'm on the front lines. I'm the one who's actually yeah. winning us these wars. Agamemnon's in the back, but he's taking all, this, all the spoils.
1: Yeah. And some other highlights. He's like, oh, I know that you've built a rampart and driven a trench, but it's no use because good luck with Hector. Mm-hmm. Uh Like, I am the only one who can kill Hector, and good luck with that. You build your trenches. Um, Go back and tell them all. This is on 264, around line 450. All I say, out in the open, too, so the other Achaeans can wheel on him in anger if he still hopes (laughs) to deceive some of his comments. So go back and tell them, but make sure everyone else hears so they get pissed at him, too. Um, He says, he'll never rob me blind with his twisting words again. In other words, fool me once, shame on me. <laughs> Not going to get fooled again. Uh, and then um, lastly, as a part of this, he's like, yeah, I don't need your women because I can really bed whoever I want to be my cherished wife. <laughs> I don't need your women. Um, and that with his mother, he's like, look, my mother tells me the uh, there are two fates. Bear me on to the day of death. If I hold out here and I lay siege to Troy, my journey home is gone, but my glory never dies. If I voyage back to the fatherland I love, my pride, my glory dies, true. But the life that's left me will be long. The stroke of death will not come on me quickly. So what's interesting here is he's like, the dilemma is glory or long life. And... you're you're you don't understand kind of my dual nature that I'm man and God, so I'm both invested in long life and glory and yet not really invested in either of them at the same time, mm-hmm. which is really interesting, and then my favorite part of all of this is he's like at the very end, he's finished, he stopped. A Stunned silence sees them all struck down. <laughs> that,
0: that was another part that made me laugh too. And he was like, yeah. This is f- over four pages of just like yes. him ripping Agamemnon. <laughs> and Odysseus was really hoping he was going to convince him. And I, was, I just imagine yeah. Odysseus be like, Whew, okay. Um, so that's a maybe. <laughs>
1: Mark you down as a maybe? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. And that's another thing I can see so well cinematically. Like I could see just being... You know locked off in a one on achilles as he's raging here and then you just cut to everybody else just sitting there <laughs> like well <shit." laughs> this
0: guy is really pissed so. <laughs> yeah um,
1: he also systematically deconstructed every one of our arguments and appeals yes
0: yeah yeah i would even say there there the one other part that of his speech too he he sneaks in this like kind of criticism of, of how long the war is taking um mm. where uh, he says it's like you know uh We've been here years and years, or something like that, and it's like, yeah. Uh, in some ways, it's like we would we would call that like the uh, like the idea of a forever war um, today. Mm-hmm. But as you got to be mm-hmm. like remember these people have been fighting for ten years, yeah, um, and like no progress is like or very little progress has been made, and it seems to be at a standstill. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it's it, it's a great speech. It's one of my favorite parts of the the Iliad in that it's in some ways, very smart. Like he, like you said, he deconstructs all of the points, but then it's also just like so emotionally cathartic of just Mm -hmm. like, like, fuck you, Agamemnon. Like, like you have just disrespected me so much. And like, now I get to like, tell you off through, through Odysseus.
1: And you, you get such a sense that his pride is wounded because he's like, the number of times that he's like, Oh, you think this is going to work on me? You know, first of all, I know that you twist your words mm-hmm. and that you're full of BS. Uh, I don't need women. I'm Achilles. I can sleep with whichever woman I want. Um, also, like, I probably can't die. No one can kill me. I. You need me more than I need you. I'm the only one who can kill Hector. And uh, yeah, like, he, he. you can really get a sense how personally offended he is.
0: Yeah, by, by this. So let me let me ask um. you then. Um, given that this is like such a, for at least for both of us, like uh, an enjoyable part of the 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 text, and this is Achilles, you know, at his like most angry, or at least at his like most um rhetorically angry. Like his rhetoric is matching his anger. Um, what do you think about that emotion in general throughout the poem? Is anger uh seen as a virtue? Is it seen as a vice? Or is it kind of more complicated than that uh duality?
1: I think it's a little more complicated than that. Let me ask you though, do you think rage and anger are the same thing?
0: Ooh, um let me let me draw a different let me let, let, <laughs> let me answer dodge, let me, dodge. Let, me, let me also dodge the question. <laughs> um can I make a a different distinction? Um because mm-hmm. this is this is the distinction that I've heard um and let me ask if this is kind of and then i'll I'll get, go back to you about anger versus rage. So the distinction that I've heard is anger versus um contempt mm-hmm. and uh this is I can't remember the the person I heard this from originally. But this is not my idea, but I've, I've heard this is that people define anger as an emotion you feel when you feel that someone is doing something wrong that they should correct that it's like you are angry at a person because their behavior is wrong they should know better they should not do that they should make up to you and with anger there's this assumption of the possibility of reconciliation or retribution and the like um the assumption that the person like is is capable of that so for example like uh I it wouldn't make sense to get angry at the sky if like if lightning hits you because like the lightning doesn't know any better. It doesn't care. It's just like a force of nature. But it would make sense to be angry at like a robber who shoots you because like they know what they're doing. They should be acting better Um, versus what I've heard of as contempt, which is a feeling that feels like anger. But you hold someone to such a low uh opinion or idea that you don't even expect anything better of them, so it's more mm-hmm. of like it's more dismissive than anger. It's like I feel something for you, which is called contempt. It feels like anger, but like I'm not even expecting you to do to any do anything better um i'm just expecting you to be to be bad and like kind of Mm. dehumanized in that way um and the reason i bring that up is like i think in in the iliad a lot of ways the anger that we see is often within like a, a a group or a community so like the greeks are getting mad or getting angry at other greeks because they expect them to like share the same values or the gods mm-hmm. are getting mad at other gods because they like they share the same ontology but like um the the feeling that um you know maybe you would have towards another group I, and i don't even know if they feel contempt towards the trojans but like sometimes in warfare uh like during genocides especially for example when you're dehumanizing the other people you don't feel angry at them you feel contempt for at them because it's like it's it's so dehumanizing you don't even expect them to do anything better it's like they're incapable of rising to your moral or ethical level
1: okay i hadn't thought of contempt within all of this um i i thought of it as the, the rage versus anger business um and I'm told by ancient anger perspectives from Homer to Galen oh. that, that the Greeks did have two concepts of this, this sort of feeling, mm. um, one being uh, more of a, an irritation and exasperation, which we might call anger, that was typically more temporary. It was shorter lasting. And it was specifically directed, like I'm angry at you for not having picked up the milk or whatever, right? And then the other one, which comes from the Greek word orgay, orgy, um, is a, a an intense, long lasting fit of passion that can involve insanity. Mm. Um, and so the difference there being, like, well, I'm angry, but I'll get over it. Whereas like rage is something that it's. Uh, like you lose your faculties of reason. It's all consuming. It's sort of blinding. Um, and I, I think that is a important distinction then when we're talking about anger, you know, when we're talking about like how it's presented in this poem, because I think, I think they're both in here. Mm -hmm. I think both the words are in here, but I also think both of the emotions are in here. And I, I feel like the poem is kind of softer on rage because I think the poem views rage as something that seizes you and something that's kind of inescapable. Uh, not, almost almost like the way we view depression or despair now, mm-hmm. where we don't really blame people for being de- depressed or in a state of despair, whereas we might blame someone for like being an asshole. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think that the poem deals with those differently, where like sometimes people have little tantrums that are kind of anger based, but Achilles clearly is in a fit of rage. And I think that might be why for us this this speech is so cathartic is also because it's it's rage, right? It's longer lasting, but it doesn't quite get to the level of insanity here, because like we said, he's actually seeing very clearly through the ruse that they're they're putting up for him. Um, the, the blind rage business seems to come later when it goes into retribution when Patroclus is killed. Yeah. And they're like, dude, don't do this. You're going to go die. And he's like, I don't give a shit you know
0: yeah i think it's interesting too in that like odyssey or sorry achilles in this uh in this part where he where he uh, gives his speech like he's been very passive and mm-hmm. um it's it's like when you think of rage i think you usually think of like Like Diomedes, um, you know, going on the the war path earlier, where I I I think they used the word rage at that point, where it's like he's so Mm. overcome, but it's like he's no longer has control, but he's doing that through his physical exertion. And Achilles is, he's, it's a type of rage that he's lost his um, his like reason and his faculties, but it's like he's actually being very still and passive. During this process is I wonder mm-hmm. too is like because this this I think we would today also call this like a grudge, which has oh, like yeah. you know anger or rage over a longer <laughs> time period, um, and sometimes like there can be a rational component to it, but then also a, an irrational component to it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder, and, I, and I, you know, I don't, yeah, obviously we don't know, but like I wonder if the Greeks also had that distinction of uh, anger over a certain time frame.
1: Well, and and I wonder as well, what, how they would have viewed his resistance to and reluctance to enter the war, because there there's a sense in which the people in the poem are frustrated and the reader might be frustrated because you're like, man, when he gets in there, he is going to smote some ruin, <laughs> you know, and, and he doesn't really get in there until like what book 19 or something like that. And in a sense, that's very satisfying because you've been waiting for it for 19 books, but i think there's another way to to view because he's such a weapon um his refusal to participate also greatly shifts the tide of the war at least early on and through his non-participation i wonder like how many lives are lost or spared based on his non like he's never a non-factor even when he's not fighting yeah um so I wonder how they would have viewed his refusal to fight early on. If it was like you know, not it's not cowardice, but it would have been close to a sort of like stubborn cowardice or why should he have a stake in this fight? You know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't know about it's cuz it seems well, I'm not I'm actually not sure. Yeah, I don't know. I don't which person. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, can I ask you this is a bigger question about the war in general. Yeah. Um, nearly every war text I've read or watched nearly everyone. Uh, I end up picking a side and <laughs> that side is usually telegraphed to me. I'm supposed to be on a particular side. Mm-hmm. Were you on a side here?
0: Um, you know, I, I think. If I had to pick, I was going to pick the Greeks. Um, I I really hated Paris because <laughs> fuck Paris, <laughs> fuck Paris. I felt bad for Hector. Um, but more than Hector, I felt bad for Hector's family. Like, uh, mm-hmm. we haven't mentioned Hector's wife, but like she gets mm-hmm. a long lamentation too. Yeah, um, and I thought I thought she was very sympathetic, and Hector's father I thought was very sympathetic. Um, and I don't think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but we we don't seem to get other than Hector and Paris like that many like heroes of Troy um, where it's like, yeah. you know, like we get Diomedes, we get Ajax, we get Patroclus, we get Achilles, we get Odysseus, you know, like with like names that we know. Um, So I think I was kind of on the Greek side just because I knew more of the people. Um, but, but I don't think they're really shown as necessarily more righteous in their cause than, than the Trojans. Um, yeah. And I think that's, that there's kind of an ambivalence on like, kind of like, why are we fighting this war? Like this seems like kind of just like unnecessary in general.
1: Mm. -hmm. Yeah.
0: Um, were you, were you team, team Trojan or team, uh, Achaeans?
1: You know, I, i bring the question up because like neither and or both Mm -hmm. i i was pretty not not to say i was like not invested in the text as i was reading it but i really wasn't um i thought individual people were badass or sympathetic at various times but i i don't think i would have picked a team
0: yeah yeah um okay do you want to do the the last question
1: Yeah, before we get there, can I just talk about some of the language that I found kind of funny, even though it's offensive? (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, So I count five uses of the word bitch. Usually Helen speaking about herself or people talking about her. Uh, The first instance is in book six, where she says to Hector, my dear brother, dear to me, bitch that I am. Vicious, scheming, horror to freeze the heart. I was like, whoa. Um, Book eight. Uh this is with the gods, but with Hera though, he is not so outraged, so irate. It's always your way to thwart his will, whatever Zeus commands. You you insolent, brazen bitch, you really dare to shake that monstrous spear in father's face. Um later, uh, same book. There is none in the world who is a meaner bitch than you. Uh, We get another brazen bitch later and then a shameless bitch in book 21 when Achilles is fighting the rivers Um, brazen and shameless. It's interesting with all five of those uses brazen or shameless comes up four times Mm -hmm. and they're essentially synonyms. Um, So I thought it was kind of interesting that uh, I don't know. I just I liked that. Uh, (laughs) I thought that was funny. But then we also have Helen referring to herself as a whore twice. Um, strong spearman and he's to be my kinsman whore that I am Hector you more than all and all for me whore that I am and this blind mad Paris Um I, I don't know I, I found it kind of funny which maybe shows my immaturity but that's a lot of Helen kind of self owning through some pretty gender specific language that's that putting herself down and I don't know what the translation is from Greek and what it would have meant there but uh, I Do you think that's just kind of Homer's voice coming through being like, yeah, Helen sucks, or do you think there's an element to Helen's character that she has reached a kind of reckoning and some regret about her involvement in all this?
0: Yeah, I, I do think Helen d- does have legitimate regret in terms of like, she's still, I think, I can't remember where it is exactly, but she's still like talks about her her kid that she left behind and missing her kid and also missing her her real husband um and the like self-owning part i think it's um again you know not knowing too much about the translation i think it's tempting to read that as like sexism but like we also have paris self-owning too like it's not like he's spared from the (laughs) same kind of like you
1: raise good points yeah yeah so Uh i don't
0: i don't know if it's like you know in this particular instance like because helen is like calling herself a bitch that's like homer Mm -hmm. putting himself in the voice of a woman to like you know be part of the patriarchy or whatever um because just because like like we see the same thing from paris um
1: yeah and you know to that to that point, um, again at not knowing the translation, I think that uh, probably if if bitch is the word they're going to pick there, it's probably not bitch the way we use it as like, you know, uh, ugh, you nasty woman, but literally just like female dog, which of course is still down, putting down you know put putting someone down there, comparing them to an animal. But there's something, and I'm, i got to queue these up, so you should talk more. Um, all of the similes and metaphors of people uh, being wild beasts yeah. throughout. Yeah. Um, I have one here in book 15, line 730, and Hector lunged again. Like a murderous lion mad for kills, charging cattle across the flats of a broad marshy pasture, flocks by the hundred led by an unskilled herdsman, helpless to keep the marauder off a longhorn heifer. No fighting, that bloody slaughter. All he can do is keep pace with the lead or straggling heads leaving the center free for the big cat's pounce, and it eats a heifer raw as the rest stampede away. Mm -hmm. That's that's a really long metaphor uh, describing someone... You know, fighting, going into battle in a way that's beastly, and it makes me think of maybe that's that's the result of the rage, is that you lose your kind of human like faculties. Yeah.
0: Well, and you we had talked earlier about this distinction between uh, and kind of permeable dis, permeable distinction between gods and mortals, and I think it also goes between mortals and animals. That yeah. um, when we were talking about the sacrifice. Uh, scenes the barbecue scenes being kind of a different (laughs) version of the like getting hacked like the people getting hacked apart like both both mortals and animals have like this uh you know reality of their physical body um Mm -hmm. and like we get like a little bit of that with the gods where there's some of them are are wounded um but they're usually on like a higher plane and i think it's kind of like it's an interesting just on the level of um Sort of uh the use use of metaphor, the use of figurative language as a way to yeah. show that this is a continuum of ontology rather than like strict strict boundaries between these different li- uh
1: yeah. beings and it's interesting that that that's come out at least for me in our conversation as I was reading, I was going what's with all these animals and then I thought you know so many na- so so many of our similes and metaphors now all of our references seem to be like media based. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is a culture that would not have had shared media necessarily. So what do they have in common is their experience and knowledge of the natural world. Yeah. Um, yeah. If I could, if I can read another one, just because this one I think is really interesting. It breaks to give a command to the listener or to give a command to the reader. It begins like this. Think how a lion mulling the soft, weak, young of a running deer clamped in his massive jaws cracks their backbones with a snap. He stormed in, invading the lair to tear their tender hearts out. And the mother doe, even when she's close by, what can she do to save her fawns? She's helpless. Terrible trembling racks her body too, and suddenly off she bounds through the glades and the thick woods, drenched in sweat, leaping clear of the big cat's pounce. Uh that one's interesting because like I said, he breaks by going like, All right, everyone, picture yeah, this. Yeah. <laughs> which which is kind of cool. But then within that, you know, it's it's the the doe seeing that oh shit the lion's here is going to eat my I almost said cubs what do you call small deer uh, uh, fawns <laughs> there you go um, and there's nothing i can do about it and we talked about this earlier with Thetis
2: mm-hmm. yeah. when
1: Achilles is going to war yeah. of her being like so so war is kind of the lion you know the, li- the lion pops in here several times and it's always given to people who are about to go into a, a killing rage and so war is this lion that comes into a den and consumes young and the women are helpless to, to kind of do anything about it, but know that their, their kids are doomed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought that was an interesting thread that goes. Yeah. through. Yeah,
0: There's also a lot of um, speaking of like, a, this is a culture that kind of is reaching for metaphors in regards to like what they know. I notice a lot of, um, farming metaphors too kind of drawing yeah. from from agricultural practice as a, as a way mm-hmm. to hit it too I would just say one that we use a lot today is um people people as computers or people as machines kind of are like yeah where it's yeah. like you know uh, so many times we think of like the thinking process as as like computing um like a, mm-hmm. like, a, like a, obviously like a computer would do rather than a, like a biological process.
1: Um, well even the word even the word process right like yeah yeah (laughs) someone will say like oh hold on let me process that Mm -hmm. you know yeah waiting for some sort of product to come to come out right Mm -hmm. uh grinds my gears Mm -hmm. get the thinking cap going we have a lot of those yeah um, yeah which is terrifying um let's uh let's get to that last question then dave all right lay it on me (laughs) so (laughs) this is like a would be a last question on a final exam that you're like, how the hell do I answer <laughs> this? <laughs> but this is for all intents and purposes, and we kind of talked about our whole project here with the podcast, but for all intents and purposes, the Iliad is kind of the first text of Western civilization, uh, the foundational text, the blueprint text of Western civilization, it's older than the Bible. And All of these kind of, you know, text and traditions, great books, courses begin with the Iliad. And it's thought of that way, of having that importance, not just as the beginning text of Western literature, but as part of like a founding document or a founding myth of Western civilization. And so as I was reading it, I was going, okay, well, where are we seeing these things? Where do we see the early threads or the roots of Western civilization. And part of my answer, I'm not going to give it yet, but part of my answer came from, uh, there, there are like surface level, abundantly obvious things that I didn't pay attention to because I myself am a product of Western civilization Mm -hmm. that I didn't really necessarily recognize, uh, similarities or mirror images because I was just like, Oh yeah, no, that's my default paradigm. Um, but David's i curious where you saw.
0: Well, OK, so <laughs> I, I would say one thing to keep in mind that I was reminding myself of um, as I was reading it is just how incredible it is that we have a text that was composed. What, like almost 3000 years ago, not quite, but almost yeah. 3000 years ago, like mm-hmm. that is insane that we even have kind of a portal into the into the culture of that time and such such like yeah. a complex like you know picture of it too um mm-hmm. when so i'm going to kind of fumble through but through an answer um on this one i think one thing that stands out is and, and that feels kind of modern in a way that perhaps because we're like part of this lineage is um the psychology of individuals where this mm-hmm. this is a poem that even though we we talked a lot about the the naming of of So many people, so many death scenes, so many, it still does hinge around a handful of very important characters and we Mm -hmm. get psychological depth of those characters. So I'm thinking like, especially Achilles, especially Hector, like we get a picture of... What we would like call like a novelistic character today, like you could imagine mm-hmm. that type of representation in our in our text today, and in the way that we think about people. So we think about people as driven by like driven by emotions, driven by reason, driven by their reactions to either good things or bad things that happen to them, and we understand their actions based on the psychology of an individual. Um,
1: and can I can I interrupt you real quick? Yeah. That was that was one thing that was so remarkable to me was, you know, you made that point earlier about assuming all Greek shit is just kind of together, but they're separated by 400 years. We're separated by nearly 3000 years. And the fact that you can recognize humans in this, uh, not just as a writing feat, but just as a way of seeing that, you know, people have changed in a sense, but also kind of not really Mm -hmm. through 3000 years, because I, I had previously fallen for that idea that, Harold Bloom says that, you know, Shakespeare invented the human and before Shakespeare, like they didn't know how to write people. And certainly within text before Shakespeare, there's a certain inconsistency of character that by modern standards, we just won't accept. But I was surprised how... As you've said, psychologically deep, but also kind of emotionally understandable and legible. Mm-hmm. A lot of the characters are in this, whether they're gods or humans. Yes, um, but sorry, yeah. Continue and
0: and mm-hmm. to add on to that too, of kind of what you're saying of like, um, you know, like old people, they're just like us. Uh, <laughs> they, <laughs> the like the things that drive them, like the the forms are different in their times versus ours, but like the underlying like based stuff is still very Mm -hmm. similar like these this is a culture driven by status and like their way to achieve status is different than ours but like we're also a culture driven by status so you know Mm -hmm. they're getting their status through warfare through um you know stealing war prizes uh through like not being dishonored publicly we're getting our status through having a high-paying job Doing something, you know, accomplishing something remarkable, what you know, whatever. But it's like we're still very much caring about our reputation, caring about what other people think about us, um, and that is where we're like getting a lot of our our self worth. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the the idea to, and, and I'm not sure if this is changing or if if we're just entering like a different version of this, but this this interplay between human agency and um the fate or the, or the gods or a higher power i see that yes. as like a central tension of western literature and western thought too to mm-hmm. like what extent are you the master of your own destiny and to what extent is this predetermined for you and i think yeah. like th- we definitely see that in the in the iliad i think today where we're um becoming more and more secular we're kind of replacing this idea of destiny or whatever with other things that are taking that place that are also like an answer, like a a different side of human agency. But I still, I still Mm -hmm. think that's a question that, that um, kind of underlies Western thought, uh, especially as like what role does the individual play in in his or her life? What role does some type of larger force, whether that's culture, society, literal gods, um, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, like how, how much are you in control of things?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I think a great, not question you're asking, but question that the text asks that we still see. You know, you see it immediately after this in the Bible mm-hmm. um, constantly, and the degrees to which God um, <laughs> directly or indirectly comes down to talk to people or influence people and influence the actions in that story. Um, but then even looking at kind of contemporary culture, as you've mentioned where in a lot of ways we've replaced god there are still so many elements of like superstitious and magical thinking um people believing that if there are some sort of forces or mechanisms beyond just the material world that we don't understand that are that are influencing what's going on yeah
0: and i and i would even say like beyond or different from just superstition too, like even a lot of scientific explanations play this role too so like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how much are you in control of your life the 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 scientific side of that might say well a lot is predetermined by your genetics like what what they might have called fate we might call genetics or like your your uh background that you were brought up in so like this idea of um you know, like in, in a lot of our political disagreements in America today, hinge on this question of how much can an individual control versus something like institutional racism or the, mm-hmm. the you know, your socioeconomic class, like those are ways in which like, there are these forces that take away agency that are not necessarily superstitious, but like that, that is still a question we, we wrestle with is, can yeah. you overcome these other forces and have individual, like the agency of the individual?
1: Yeah I I thought of it too with like mind brain discussions. Yeah, yeah. Of you know we can see literally on the the biochemical level the the way in which the brain functions and is does the function of the brain on the biochemical level precede our um the consciousness of choice or consciousness of thought mm-hmm. or is it the other way around and if it does precede that then to what degree are we kind of just the sum of neurons firing? you know, which I I think participates in that conversation as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that's my answer. Uh, what's yours?
1: (laughs) Um, the, the ones, like I said, the the answers I kind of came up with were things that I initially had just overlooked or taken it taken for granted, which is, you know, the structure of a narrative for one, um, ways in which the, the, the things on which we hold stories, uh, that, that we hang the tenets of story. So (laughs) <laughs> the listing we mentioned and the recognition of that listing, the setup and the payoff the of of rage, of emotion, of consequences of human action, um e- even the structuring of the text as like the here's the Achilles rage books, here's the decimation of the Trojans books. um you know, those the 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 structure therein where like the beginning is kind of a lot of exposition setting up the exposition of it um the I- ideas of heroism and the way that it's that it, that heroism has within it um nobility but also pride mm-hmm. i think is is a conversation that we're still having in an interesting way um the war narrative the idea that war has within it in uh, conflicts that are inherently interesting or exciting or repulsive to people. Um, so many of, even, even if it's not a war narrative, so many of our contemporary films, even like action films are, it's see, see the working out of conflict in this way, which I think is an interesting point you made far earlier in our discussion about book 23, where, so many of the conflicts in book 23 through the games are brought out through um, kind of compromise or a tie. Um, and our, our our society is so structured in ways where there is just one winner, whether it's a presidential election, the World Series, um, you know dom toretto or jason momoa like everything it's gotta be there's gotta be this one there's a conflict often it's a conflict that's a a battle or a game and we have to have one come out of it i thought was interesting um oral tradition Mm -hmm. you know that this being a a product of a an oral tradition so the idea of communicating through narrative i think is something that
0: well, and I, and, I, from and I would also say, like, that's that's one where I because I think we've transitioned now into more of like a image based um, culture where, you know, mm-hmm. you even said earlier, like you're you're the type of reader who ca- who shoots a movie in yep. their mind when when they're reading. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are like that. Th- those who people yeah. who even read it all who don't just who don't yeah. just watch video. Uh, but it's it's weird to think of a culture that experienced the world or experienced culture primarily through their ears. And then we went mm-hmm. through a long period of a culture that experienced it through their eyes reading. And now we're like experiencing it through our eyes in a different way of, of visual mm-hmm. uh, video, um, which I think is a, yeah, an interesting evolution.
1: Yeah. Well, and and then the way in which, as we mentioned, the like the narrative, not digression, but the, mar- the narrative repetitions in here, the role that that plays in making images that it doesn't say he slaughtered 13 people mm-hmm. you're gonna get a stanza graphically about each yeah, one of those yeah. or or the number of times we didn't mention this but the number of times where in a movie we would we would uh condense this yeah but it would be like uh dave I'm going to tell you this story. And then I want you to tell your mom this, right? Yes. Yeah. In a movie you would have been like, okay. And that's what TJ said and hang up. No, no, no. In the Iliad, we're going to get a scene where you call it and says, TJ wanted me to tell you six minutes of what I just told you. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: And, and I just thought that was a kind of an interesting um, expansion of time within the poem that tried my patience. But we don't we don't really tell stories that way. I'm like, dude, I just heard this, but it's not for me. And and I'll
0: add one more too of um, kind of along the idea of narrative is this idea of from the very, you know, earliest texts that we have this idea of historical fiction being like a Mm -hmm. place of let's look back to the past to tell stories about our present. Um, Yeah, I think that's something that we, we obviously still do today, where it's like oftentimes we'll we'll work out kind of modern day issues by going back to a story from from a, sh- a shared yeah. history or a shared mythology yeah
1: well and i i'm shameful to admit this i don't know how much the fagels edition uh, translation maintains this but the original text is in dactylic hexameter um so it, i mean it is a poem we've been using the word poem throughout but it is a poem so it's a, a aesthetically artistically rendered yeah. account of an ancient history it's not 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 to say that these there are aesthetic choices for this, but it's not like a journalistic history. It's not a textbook history, yeah. it's addressed up and aestheticized um which would be insane to think like this is sixteen thousand lines of dactylic hexameter. <laughs> yeah
0: well and that's what I say is like what i you know this is this is something I always hate is like when people think of people in the past as stupid, it's like yeah. no, they were just as smart as us, like three thousand or years. smarter yeah or or smarter in a lot of ways, like yeah, I mean that's an incredible feat of, of poetry. Like it's, it's insane. Um,
1: yeah. Well, and I heard on one of the podcasts I listened to about this, that, uh, one of the theories for why it like, this is so good is that it probably passed through several different homers mm -hmm. for maybe hundreds of years before, like this version that we got, so it—you could imagine like seven people got a pass. Of this. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a lot of script doctors working on it.
1: Yeah, a lot of script doctors. Uh-huh.
0: Next time on Classics Cafe,
1: the War and Its Aftermath. We'll follow Odysseus's journey home from Troy to Ithaca in Homer's The Odyssey.